you cannot be insured for breaking a law. The problem with this is that we've forgotten how bad these diseases are. If a nurse comes up and says, will you see, what's the answer? Yes. In many ways, these guidelines are just waiting out there to come bite you in the butt. When they start puking the green, you're in trouble. Ladies and gentlemen, coming to you, the review of the second year of Risk Management Monthly. We've got Mel and Greg here, and we're going to capsulize each month the pithy points. Just the pithy points. Just the pithy? Not the good, just pithy. Pithy points of our second year. Let me just say right now, Rick, I can't believe that we took two full discs to do the first year. What a bargain for anybody who got that mailing. What are you doing, like a commercial? A commercial for us, exactly. Well, you know, we did on the first issue a little commercial saying, listen, what kind of insurance company are you that you cannot think that this is a reasonable thing to get to your insured emergency physicians? But we don't want to insult our potential clients. I don't think. Anyway, let's get started. June 2008, coming to you, our special guest commentator was Jim Ducharme, Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of AIM Health Group in Canada, actually Toronto. Jim is an emergency physician, boarded in both the United States and Canada, was the Director of the Emergency Department Big ER in St. John, Nova Scotia, and is on the faculty, Dalhousie, and now is with a group that provides all kinds of services in addition to emergency services there. And Jim was, by the way, a graduate of the University of Southern California residency program. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Just barely, but he did get out of the program. <laughs> no, he's right? the only resident there who was fired three times. Did you know that? Yes, I know that. That's yes. right. He has a certain claim to fame over there. I'm sure Billy must have been fired at least no, no, no. three or four Jim times. Jim has the record. But the nice thing about it is that the guy who fired him never remembered he fired him. <laughs> yes. yeah, they were the good right. old days. He's no longer the chairman there. But in any case, spinal epidural abscess was the topic that we were covering, at least in the beginning of that issue. Early misses are the rule in these cases. My notes say the diagnosis is not made at the first ED visit three quarters of the time. Isn't that the standard of care then? Greg? Then the standard of the care standard is, is not to make the diagnosis. Exactly. And I, I think Jim brought out very nicely the fact that we see in a certain group of people a back pain, and we're not interested in seeing back pain. And if they don't have some glaring finding at that moment in time, it's going to be very difficult to make the diagnosis. He was just one of our commentators. He wasn't kind of the authority. Actually, he was sitting in for Melvis. Yes, <laughs> yes he was. You were at Whistler or Hawaii or somewhere I wasn't. We also noted that half the cases have two or more ED visits prior to the diagnosis, and the classic triad is rarely present, which is 8%, one paper said, back pain, fever, and neurologic deficits. But they will be around sometime, I can assure you. Yeah, about that, 8% of the time. <laughs> high litigation due to delayed diagnosis and permanent neurologic deficits. That's what? the point that should be made. As soon as you have a deficit, which isn't going to go away, and they can't obviously go back to work, you've got a huge potential money loss. The predisposers are really important. IV drug use, which is obviously a setup for a delayed diagnosis due to the potential for prejudicial care. Everybody just rolls their eyes and, oh, geez, what do you want kind of thing. Well, the fact is that they've seeded bacteria into their spine and generated this abscess. Immunocompromised in terms of diabetes, HIV, chronic steroids, recent procedures, and they point out that this diagnosis is increasing in frequency, not decreasing, because there's more and more people have hardware put in them someplace, which can serve as the nidus of infection. So hardware and recent procedures seeding the back. Fever with midline back pain. We're going to talk about that more specifically because midline back pain is not a typical finding in people who have musculoskeletal back pain. Midline back pain, I'm talking about pressing over the spinous processes. One of them is sore. That's not kosher. 
liver disease, renal failure, and the other key here is distal infections like skin, and one of the ones that are most common actually is urine, which wouldn't have thought to seed to the back, but it does. Physical exam, if the patient is not undressed, you have not done an adequate exam, and all they have to do is ask the patient, did you have your pants off? And do you remember having your pants off at the exam? And once they say no, sorry, you could not have done a decent exam in this case. We talked about this, that the problem in emergency medicine is somehow people don't think that we deserve the same kind of preparation of the patient that other specialists deserve. No neurologist would go in unless his patient was properly prepared. No thoracic surgeon would go in. You know what, in emergency departments, whenever I've given the talks, I've asked the questions, how many of you had to go in to see a patient with their clothes still on for their back pain? Everyone raises their hand. You know what, we got to get over that, and you can't do a good job unless you can see the patient. Well, not only are you looking at the patient in terms of their back, but it's also you're going to check them to see if they got any skin infections, which may be one of the cedars of this thing. Examine the painful area. You're looking for some redness, warmth, erythema, those kinds of things. And we've got this thing where you're touching the spinous processes, pushing. That hurts. And the other thing is, is that most of these are in the thoracic area, which is not the site of mechanical back pain. Mechanical back pain is lumbar or cervical. But the fact is when you bend your thoracic area, there's nothing moving there. It's all bending in the lumbar area. So you have thoracic back pain, that should be a key to your considering this diagnosis because if you don't consider it, you're never going to make it. We pointed out, by the way, in this section that the end of the animal is not in their feet, but it's in their butt. <laughs> if you actually get a chance, scrape the skin perianally if they feel that say way, what <laughs> touch yeah. them near yeah, I was talking about winking of the anus winking like winking like, yeah winking. like that and if you get an anal wink that's all you need you don't have to do a rectal exam but what you need to know is do they have sensitivity by the way you can also check that by looking for the cremasteric reflex if the cremasteric reflex is present on both sides they have normal sensation and what is that doctor that's when you stroke the skin on the inside of the thigh and the testicle rises up to meet you doing, doing, in, in doing. younger men you old guys have some our, our testicles are down by our knees you know that thing is going to fly up there like a slingshot you know yeah. you some rub in there well actually i saw a guy who came in his chief complaint was testicular pain and it actually turned out to be a trick knee so i mean these things happen yeah. you want the rim shot there okay one of the key things very 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 important you've got to look at the temperature of the patients who have back pain 100.4 is officially a fever. you got to consider that. Circle that number. You've got somebody who has a low-grade fever and back pain. You are in the mucky waters of, is this the problem or not? You also talked about this business about anal and that kind of stuff. Cold equine syndrome, they said. Beware of that. But obviously, that's going to be a late, pretty obvious kind of finding. This is where you can't urinate. Well, maybe it's not that obvious. You can't urinate and you're dropping feces onto the floor because you have urinary retention, so your bladder is distended, and maybe you'll have some overflow, but the anal sphincter tone goes down. In my 150,000 patient career, let me just tell you that... I thought your age was the years. The problems with the rectum are so late. This is very late. The first thing you see is problems with urine. But I guess I've never seen anybody with the anal problem who did not preceding that have urinary retention. I have to give them your quotation, though. That's it. S234 keeps the feces off the floor. Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's help you, helpful. That's right. You know, All right. We have a medical student in the room. Is that correct? Yes. That's, That's a good mnemonic right there. Yes, sir. All right. Said rates, elevations are the rule, are the rule. Um, 
may not be present early on, but my sense is this is that set rates are generally elevated. Imaging choice is MRI, not CT, not plain x-rays, MRI. And what means that you have to get the MRI people there at 10 o'clock at night. Why is it that the machine is shut down at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock? And you're not allowed to get that machine going until the next morning. Well, because uh, emergencies, of, spinal emergencies only occur between 9 and 5. Uh, okay. Everybody knows well, that, that explains it. Okay. What I've found, too, is that if you look at some of the smaller hospitals, and I've worked at hospitals where you're the only doctor there at night, <laughs> you may have to transfer the patient. I have no hesitation. It doesn't happen often. Maybe it's once a year that I'm going to send them someplace else for that MRI. But when you send them for that MRI, it's got to be a place that once they do the study, there's someone who can answer the question and do the surgery. Also, be careful. This might look like a flu case. Myalgia, low-grade fever, malaise, my back hurts a little bit. You shine that on. It's easy to miss these, and it's the rule that you are. The clock is running in these cases. It's all about... If you had only intervened sooner, we would not have had these neurologic problems, and the person is wheeled into the courtroom, and money needs to change hands. And these go for, what, on average, millions of dollars? The problem is, what you've got is somebody who's got this half their body perfectly normal and the other half useless, and that is an expensive problem. Then we went on to a report about some doctors who got sued because they wrote letters of recommendation to an anesthesia colleague who was diverting drugs and working under the influence of narcotics. These guys felt bad for him. The group fired him, but a couple of the guys felt bad for him. He was applying for a job at another hospital, and these doctors wrote letters to the other hospital saying, yeah, he's a wonderful guy. And the other hospital hired him, and under the influence of drugs, while doing an OB case, that woman was substantially injured as an anesthesia accident, and the hospital then sued those two doctors who wrote those nice letters for intentional and negligent misrepresentation, an intentional attempt to deceive, and they won, and they won. So you're allowed to decline letters of recommendations. Don't think you're doing your friend a favor. It might come back to bite you. And is your malpractice insurance going to cover you because you intentionally misrepresented? I don't think so. And this is why I haven't written you a letter. And you're all pissed (laughs) off at me, but that's why. Well, it depends what you write in the letter. My standard letter of recommendation in this situation is, I've known him for six years. He's never stolen anything from me that I know of. And thank you very much. Exactly. Yeah. All right. That is June. Okay. Well, we moved on quickly to July, the heat, the summer, and our guest commentator was one of our great friends, Al Sacchetti, who's chief of emergency medicine at Our Lady of Lords Hospital in Camden, New Jersey, and also, I believe, part of the distinguished faculty of the emergency medicine abstract course. Most of these guys are faculty of the EMA course. Terrific. We also had another visitor on that one. It was Sandy Mahan, who we've talked to before. First thing we talked about was fractures. And in general, all emergency physicians need to develop an attitude toward fracture. Can I more properly introduce Sandy? Sandy was the head of risk management for Beta Healthcare Group which is the company from which I am insured here in Los Angeles. Very nice company. They don't charge us exorbitantly. They discharge us very high. But they're nice people. And the wonderful thing that they do is they send a subscription to Risk Management Monthly to all of their ER doctors, which is the most enlightened thing I can envision a company doing. Well, that's, I just don't want to say that. You know, in the discussion on fractures that we got into, Al Sacchetti pointed out very quickly that almost all of these involve x-ray negative or x-ray minimal fractures. 
I don't think I have ever in my medical legal career seen both bones of the forearm missed. I've never seen that case. I mean, you usually don't, with a fractured femur, send them out simply because they can't walk out. What we're concerned about are those things which, quote-unquote, appear nickel and dime, and when they come back, it's not a good thing. So think about the initially missed x-rays. In fact, if I had to have somebody overread my x-rays, I'd rather have them overread the ones that I read as negative, not the ones I read as positive. Those aren't the ones that come back to bang you. And I think what happens is physicians downplay the significance of that first x-ray and say, ah, it's not a problem. You know what? You don't know that. The other thing is, if the patient has pain, you still have a problem. Even if it's not a fracture, it's still a pain management problem. And splinting them up and warning them of the hidden fracture and telling them when to come back, a specific time to come back in, would essentially eliminate all the lawsuits on fractures in emergency medicine. They're all dependent of time of recognition, did something bad happen in the interim, and when you think about it, there's some pretty simple rules here that we need to follow. Well, Greg Henry's rule is never say you don't have a fracture. Correct. You don't have any obvious, displaced, grossly screwed up fracture, but it may be something quite subtle, which may show up a little bit later. So that's the caveat. That's the hedging. Good hedging there, Greg. We, we also got into the sepsis bundle question, and are protocols really necessary? And the problem is this. We got into the entire idea of fads in medicine and sticking in central lines or this kind of catheter and that sort of thing. Do you really need to do that? Now, I know everyone's talking about it, but I don't believe there is any information that says that giving them lots of water and early antibiotics, there's anything better than that going on right now. Some people think we need a wedge pressure. Some people think we need this or that. But I think a lot of the enthusiasm that went around the sepsis bundles and intensive care unit treatment, essentially, in the emergency department, I'm not sure that's the standard of care. And we need to be careful when we advocate that sort of thing. Well, I think one of the issues there is the use of any kind of central catheters to measure oxygenation, which is going to drive fluid administrations. Most of us want no parts of that, no parts of that. We'll give you the antibiotics, and we're going to give you the saline. I think it's pretty clear that we under-resuscitate these people, and Correct. I think that that's what the studies have shown. But this idea of taking this third step with these catheters, I think the literature is going to try to show we don't really need that. Yeah, there's a big trial going on right now called the PROCESS trial, which we're actually enrolling patients at USC to find out which part of this sepsis bundle actually works. And we hope that it's good fluids and antibiotics. Well, you know, look at everything. Our friend Jerry Hoffman said, yes, there are these three major components and there is a better outcome. But we don't know, as you said, which of the components, if any, frankly, are the differentiators here. Right, exactly. The other thing is very hard in sepsis to case match these things, to put them into the studies, because there are so many variables about the people who have those types of infections. Next area we got into with Al was the holding admitted ICU patients in the emergency department. Everybody has to do it. Nobody's happy about it. But at least now there's a growing literature which we can take back to our hospital's administrators and say, look, here's some proof that if they stay in the emergency department, they actually do worse. There was a study discussed in which we said for every 20 ICU patients held in the ED for six hours or more, one will die 
as the result of that care. When you think about it, the staffing nursing ratios up in the ICU are usually two patients to one nurse. I don't know a place where we have two patients to one nurse in the emergency department to be able to do those sorts of things. I just can't picture where that would be, and we just don't have it. I know that we can't move them as quickly as we'd like, but I'll tell you what, the problem is the ICU does have no other job but to deal with those patients. We have lots of other jobs. You know, I think that we have in our database probably 10 studies now that talk about what happens when people are held in the emergency department with regards to the level of care. They don't get adequate pain medication. We show some papers that talk about heart attack patients. They don't get the things that they're supposed to get in a timely enough manner. But by far, the most compelling papers have actually been done by the Australians and this study from the Critical Care Medicine, where they basically showed that mortality is increased because of this problem. And so the idea here is there is growing data. Does anybody care kind of thing? Well, this is powerful stuff to give to the administrators and say, look, we're killing patients. That means we need to get them upstairs. And the best study by far was done in the U.S. by the Society of Critical Care Medicine, where they looked at a whole bunch of patients and an unequivocal marker of worse outcome was being held in the emergency department six hours or more. Exactly right. Although it's not because necessarily our care was that bad. Maybe that's a marker that the whole hospital is being compromised, that the ICU is full and we have no places to put them. And so we just get the blame. But the fact is it may be a much broader problem. Yeah. And the problem whenever you blame the emergency department is this is patients in, patients out. You can't bring them in until you get them out. And it's that continuous flow which is the problem. We also went back over the issue of handoffs. I can't tell you how many times, and we've pointed out that within the last month in the annals, there's been three papers that looked at the handoff issue, the change of shift issue. And the bottom line is it's always a serious problem. There are two bad days in the emergency department, July 1st in any training hospital, And any time you have to hand off a patient that you did not examine, how are you going to make the decisions? Well, you know, the Joint Commission's got to burr up its butt about handoffs, and they're trying to make everybody more sensitive to this point. But I think that there's just some common courtesy that needs to go on in the emergency department. We have initiated at our hospital the idea that a handoff will be done in front of the patient where I, as the leaving doctor, I'm going to introduce you to the doctor who's coming on. Mr. Smith, this is Dr. So-and-so. He's coming on. He's going to be taking over your care. He understands that we're waiting for the results of the PET scan that we've ordered two days ago and that he's going to follow up on that and take over your care. It's common courtesy to do that. The idea of you walking in and said, oh, your doctor left, he's off duty. Come on, that's not the way to do business. The same thing is being done by our nurses. This nurse is now going to introduce you to the nurse who's going to take over your care. And we understand that we're waiting for a phone call from your mom or something like that so that there's some communication so that that patient understands that that person understands what's going on and they're up to speed. It's just reasonable. We then reviewed two closed claims. One of them had to do with a missed appendicitis, which, by the way, cost $860,000, and a woman with a negative CT scan. I want to talk about this for a second because I've got a bug up my butt on this issue. Number one, you don't need a CT scan to take out the appendix. If it looks like a duck and it squawks like a duck, 
why don't you take out the appendix? In the old days when we didn't have a CT scan, we did something very radical. We examined the patient. It never worked. Uh, it never worked. Work. And we actually sent them to operation. We got into this discussion of the CT scan and how good is it? Well, it's probably got an 8% miss rate. Most people would argue somewhere in the 5 to 8% range. And the paradox of this is the thinner and the smaller the person, the higher the miss rate. You do better in fat people looking at the CT scan for an appendix. And so a lot of these miss rates are in people who, by the way, you can do a very good physical exam on. It should be noted in this case, by the way, that the nursing note said guarding. She used the magic word. Mm -hmm. And whenever there's a phrase written by another health professional on that chart that you disagree with, please answer that somewhere on the chart. Because when it hangs out there, this comment that you don't want repeated, if you and I said guarding to each other, that indicates peritonitis. You've created a no-go-home chart. No-go-home chart. one word is now no-go-home chart. But the nurse wrote that and... You disagree that there isn't guarding, that their physical exam skills are not as good as yours, no, so you, you should write in the chart? During my examine? examination, patient evidence, no guarding, rebound, rigidity, those kinds of things. What you say is nursing note appreciated. Right, so you which specifically means address it. Nursing note noted, but unappreciated. I don't appreciate it. I don't it, appreciate no. it, but I have to answer it. So then what you say is, at my examination at this moment in time, this is what I find. The other thing you can do, and I've done this, is have the nurse come back in and say, feel the belly, show me the guarding. And if they don't see it, I say, amend your note or write another note at this time. Because that's a time bomb. That's a disaster waiting to happen sitting out there on that chart. And I think Rick's comment about this is a potential no-go-home patient. You've got to be serious about this because we see a lot of abdominal pain that does go home. The bigger time bomb, of course, is that the nurse is right. And so if you see that on the chart, well, go back and examine again, like, oh my gosh, you are right, there is guarding. Apparently that, that's the, the nurse was right here. By the, the third point that we made was, this case went down because when they got a negative CT scan, what was the assumption? <laughs> they don't have appendicitis. Nothing could be further from the truth, and still, in medicine, I don't care what study you've used, short-term interval follow-up. Feel the belly again, and here's the discharge instruction. If you are not totally well in six to eight hours, return. We'll examine you again. We'll check anything you want. If you get worse, come back sooner. But reasonable short-term interval follow-up is how abdominal pain cases are made. Or if you have new symptoms that are not there now. Right. Worse or new or persisting are the big three. So now the person's vomiting. They weren't vomiting before. That's a new symptom. And the issue is you got to put a word in there about how quickly they come back. I think the word is immediate. immediate. It's not tomorrow morning. It's immediate. You put the ball in their court. Well, to do routine follow-up in six hours at my place, I'd have to discharge you and ask you to go immediately and re-sign in. Yeah. <laughs> Good work. Yeah. In places which run on a little more reasonable schedule, we can do that. The other thing is, it's no work and no time. If you've seen somebody or you had them come back in, all the history and all that kind of stuff is already taken. All you got to do is lay them down, feel the belly, and just say, uh-oh, this looks worse now. Here's what I don't want you doing is shooting another CT scan. First CT scan, 450 times the radiation of a chest x-ray. Now, 
if you do another CT scan within an 8 or 10 hour block of time, you not only get another 450, but you get the compound effect that there's been no time to diminish is it the like effects of the first interest It's like compound interest. And what it is, is you're shooting a young person. You have substantially increased their risk of cancer down the road. And I don't think we talk about this enough. Everybody just wants the CT scan. And I think that's wrong. And if you talk about it in exactly those terms, that this is the equivalent of standing here. Come here. Rick, stand in front of this chest x-ray machine. Let me just bang this bad boy about 500 times. How are you going to feel about that? We don't have that sense of how much radiation is until you start talking in terms of things like that. And then yeah. people go, holy smoke, yeah, I'm just standing in front of that for 500 You can't use Rick. Times. He's old. That's true. The chances that he's going to get anything are small. You know, it might as, cure the if, cancer that he already had. If That's it's exactly. Rick, light him up. Make him glow in the dark. <laughs> it's not going to do anything. I'll tell you, I wouldn't have it done to my three-year-old granddaughter. I just wouldn't have it done. There are better studies. Don't do it. Well, actually, this year in the abstracts course, there's a two 30-minute presentations about these imaging techniques, particularly in the setting of appendicitis. And it's very clear that these people should have ultrasounds first. Unless you're older and you're not concerned about the radiation, right. ultrasounds absolutely should be done first. And it's not the way that it's being done in the United States, but it is the way that it is being done in a lot of other civilized countries who have learned that ultrasound with practice is, you know, you're talking about 88%. CTs, maybe 94, 95%. There's a small difference, but many, many people will be saved irradiation if you do an ultrasound first. But that's but, another matter. By the way, it's such a great laugh that when we were young in medicine, as soon as we thought they had an appendicitis, it was nothing by mouth. Now, if you want one of those CT scans still at our place, the radiologist puts seven cups <laughs> of oral contrast there, and they've got to fill themselves up till it's coming out their ears and their nose before they send them over. That's why you need to take this year's course, because we cover all of the literature on that to date. There is a meta-analysis of 26 studies that concluded that CTs without contrast for appendicitis were at least as good as those with 26 study meta-analysis. Yeah, would you send that to our radiologists? We've Actually, sent them every paper, Rick, every paper, and they say in their hands, they think it's still better to have contrast. This topic is evidence-proof. Okay. Well, that's good. And where do you put those papers? In the BMW catalog, so that the radiologist, while they're having lunch, will... Hey, what's this? Oh, that's right, right, look at that. Right, that's right. That's it. That's it's the right. only place that you can be sure that they'll see it. Of course. I know. Some of my radiology friends are really good. The senior radiologist at our hospital never wants contrast. He was professor of radiology at USC. He knows his stuff. Never. Moving on. Good man. Oh, do you want to do the last case here, Chief? Which one is that? A oh, paranoid yes, yeah, yeah. patient, unsupervised, out the window. This has more to do with hospital architecture and design. And the first question we have to ask is, why would they put the psych floor on the eighth floor of the hospital? See, a psych floor should be on the second floor. In the basement? Well, no, a basement <laughs> would be good. Not the first floor, because it's too easy to get out, but the second floor, so at least, second or third, so at least when they jump out the window, it's an orthopedic question, and it's not a dead question. This was a case of a paranoid patient allegedly was left unsupervised and untreated and jumped out of a hospital window and died. Now, you ask, why was the emergency doctor involved in this case? This had to do with what he advised the psychiatrist who admitted and what the psychiatrist then told the nursing staff about the supervision and watching of this patient in the department and the emergency doctor got sucked in. Now, before we get hate mail from everybody in the country, say, well, that's not fair. We're just the messenger here, folks. The emergency doc got sucked in on the orders 
that the psychiatrist wrote. Are we unhappy about this? Yes. Of course. Well, wait a second, <laughs> Mel. you got to remember, this isn't fair. If you're looking for fairness, get a religion, okay? Because you're not going to find it in the... All right, you guys, uh, that was July. Coming up to you, Melvis, is August? August. So August. August, we did a couple of things. First of all, we talked a little bit about charting tips and... Charting. 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 Yeah. You translate that? Yeah, well, yeah. Charting. Charting. Charting, charting <laughs> tips. And what we noted in that series was that these template charts, particularly these tick box things, are potentially dangerous and really one of the best portions of the chart is to write a medical decision-making note. I saw Mr. Smith, it was a dark and stormy night, and I think this is what's going on, and here's our plan. And if you just slavishly use those tick boxes, a lot of our experts have said they're not as easy as to defend as a well-written chart or a well-dictated chart. I've given two depositions in the last two weeks. Both of them had to do with checkbox charts, and both of them had to do with what did it mean when he checked off a tick box that said neuro negative. And now what it does, you have to go back in and you have to now explain what you did. Now we can't write down everything we do, but when the complaint is a neurologic complaint, you at least ought to focus. I understand the tympanic membranes, you could probably check off normal, that's fine. But you know, when they say they have a problem with confusion, walking, that sort of thing, you better make some more serious comments about those areas because yeah. the check marks isn't enough. Reflexes, ataxia, finger to nose, all of those things make it clear that you did a good job. This checkbox is just too easy, man. Too easy to hit that thing. And what did you mean by the neuro enamel? Did you check all that other stuff? Well, not. Well, right. we've actually had in the past a case where the checkbox was also checked for normal pelvic on a male. Just understand going down those lists, I think we are sometimes not quite as. You mean uh, compulsive as we I should be. Invaginating the scrotum severely. <laughs> yes. Yowza. Yowza. Yeah, yeah. That's so good. The other tip that we had there was when you're getting consultations and you're having conversations with other physicians, write down the doctor's name, the time you spoke to them, and a little bit about the discussion. Don't just say, I spoke with Mrs. Smith about her patient, but right. write something that's useful. And don't say, I spoke with urology. I'm willing to bet that urologist has a name of some kind. Yeah, well, it might be 30 syllables, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, Indian name. You or know. two. Swami, uh, uh, it doesn't make any difference. Just make sure you can identify the person. This is like when they say, I spoke to, oh, the toxicology. You know what? You spoke to somebody in the toxic department. Put a name down so that we can someday get a hold of them if we need to. Then we had a big spiel. I don't know if this was the great debate, this one. But yeah, it was. It was. This is the great debate about low-risk chest pain patients and so we're going to talk now or we talked then in august of 2008 from a medical malpractice point of view because this drives me crazy from a systems point of view but patients who come to the emergency department with what apparently is low risk chest pain don't necessarily have low risk they've selected themselves out from a big group of patients out there 300 million and this one's come in and said i have chest pain so take them seriously that is the first most important malpractice point or risk prevention point take all of these patients seriously well the other thing we pointed out was there is no basis in the u.s to talk about the acceptable miss rate on chest pain if we're dealing with a Canadian paper or an Australian paper or, heaven forbid, the Brits, I mean, they've made these decisions. Lives are cheaper in those countries. They are. And they've decided if it's a 1% miss, we can handle that. Got to remember, though, that can be a lot of in China. If there's a 1% miss rate, that's what? 100 million people. 
but they're willing to deal with that sort of thing. We're not willing to deal with that sort of thing. Then we talked about EKGs, and the lesson with EKGs is to get them fast, get them often, frequently, but remember that you can have a normal or non-specific EKG, and that be completely consistent with the diagnosis of acute myocardial infarction or non-ST segment elevation acute myocardial well, infarction or angina. The point was it's only a test, and a test can be wrong. And I don't know why we've convinced our own medical students not to go with their gut on some of these things. But if it ain't right, if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't taste right, it's not right. Well, the problem is the huge number of patients we admit don't have this diagnosis. Right. So it's kind of like you can't necessarily go with your gut. I think one of the things that came up recently that I thought was very cool, it was an article in the abstracts that we did, is talking about risk factors. And yeah. it basically concluded that in any one patient, risk factors are irrelevant. Yeah, it's great if your father had a heart attack and your brother had a heart attack. and all. That may be increasing your risk, but a substantial subset of these MI patients have absolutely no risk factors. And you often hear the resident come up and say, well, I got no risk factors. Wait, wait a second. That means nothing. The risk factor has only one function. That is for family practice physicians or general internists to counsel their patients on lifestyle changes and what they ought to be doing. I agree that we should fix their blood pressure. I agree we ought to convince them not to smoke, or someone should. But on any one individual patient, I think what you're saying, Rick, is you can't go down the list of risk factors and decide if they're having an MI. See, we don't care if the four things are negative. You've got an elevated SD segment. I mean, what do you got to do? Send them home? Well, the other thing we found recently is a great paper that looked at whether people's EKG, if you have chest pain and your EKG is normal, people say, well, that means it's probably not coronary pain. This study showed it had no relationship. If you had an EKG and you were having pain versus not having pain, you could not use that as a distinguisher saying, well, if you're having pain and it's coronary pain, your EKG should be abnormal. It didn't work. Well, we also talked about the fact that there is no one description of pain that rules out coronary pain. If you say that it's crushing, if it's this, you know, we ask questions, which we ought to be taken out and beaten for. You remember the question is, does it feel like an elephant sitting on your chest? I've never had an elephant sit on my chest. Well, I actually did. I had one patient in all my years who did have an elephant roll on him. This was a professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan who was from India. And as a boy, he was raised with a baby elephant. They're called a mahout. And the elephant did roll on him. So I had to ask the question. I said, did this pain now? Did it feel like the elephant sitting on your chest? He said, oh, no. He said, it's an elephant much worse. And, <laughs> and I think we need to understand that you can't ask them. We've all had that 60-year-old guy who said, that's not really a pain. You know, it's just a little bad feeling. I don't know what it is. But the, and they're but, dead two minutes later. But they've come to the ER. Right. Exactly. So we also talked about cardiac markers, and we said that, look, one cardiac marker in these circumstances, most people agree, is not appropriate, or at least it's much more difficult to defend doing one and sending them home versus keeping them for six or eight hours and doing two, because one misses lots of people. Yeah, well, with you this and disease. I had a debate. Yeah, and I well, and I, I took the position of the American Heart Association's 2008 guidelines. It basically says you got chest pain, you got a non-specific or normal EKG and a negative initial marker. Basically, that person needs to hang around another eight hours. And assuming that during that time they're asymptomatic, that stuff has to be repeated. And you were trying to really take the other point of view about use your judgment and all that other crap. Yeah, well, <laughs> well we can't redo that debate because it, it would takes take too long. it would take. 
it would take the I day. was right. Let me just tell you. Yeah. <laughs> that was the summary. Yeah, the summary really is we don't know exactly what that time interval ought to be, and there's still a debate whether that should be at six hours, at this hour, that hour. I think Rick's point is... We what is my a, point? Well, that you, needed, that you needed to have two points. We needed to have two points to make a line here. And one, one marker, you know, as I was about to say, Amzheim, one marker is really not enough. Then we talked about a worst first approach. We all know this in emergency medicine. Somebody comes in with chest pain, you've got to think about MI, PE, aortic dissension, tension pneumothorax. And then we had a little discussion about whether you need to specifically address that in the chart. I don't believe this is a PE because. I don't believe this is a dissection because. Either directly by saying I don't believe this is a dissection with your reasoning or do things, talk to the chart that says to the person who comes on, they thought about it. The pulses are equal in both arms. There's no diastolic I like that better. The blood pressure is X, Y, and Z. So speaking to the chart in a fashion that means this was a thorough physician. What that basically says, Mel, is that you've got dictation. You can make those kind of comments because I'll tell you what, if it's a checkbox chart, I know no checkbox chart that approaches it that way. You've got to have some form of communication on that chart, which is better than boxes. You've got to have place to write your thinking. And when you look at most of the charts, there's not a lot of space for medical decision making. It's very, very small. Obviously, Rick would tell you what you need to really have is a scribe. Mm-hmm. who is writing as you're talking. The dictation's good, but I mean, you know, there are better ways to do it. Are you done there? No, you keep annoying me and talking over the top of me. I'm sick of you guys. Okay. I'm going home. Uh, oh, I am home, so I'll think. continue on. The other thing that we talked about there is you really like to talk about the AHA guidelines. And the AHA guidelines basically in summary said you should keep them for six or eight hours if you don't know the cause of their chest pain, that you should then follow that up with some test doesn't have to necessarily be today, but within 72 hours. And you should perhaps think about giving these people aspirin and nitroglycerin and some other stuff as well. So these AHA uh, guidelines... Excuse me, you've got proof that nitroglycerin will prevent no, an MI. Just, yeah. no, that's don't. what the guidelines say. Yeah, I was just you regurgitating just, the just guidelines. I don't agree with, with guidelines. nitro. Yeah, and yeah, you yeah. don't have to follow the guidelines, but your point, I think, is a good one. You should know about the guidelines so you know where you're headed. You that's don't have to follow them, just know them. That's why it's a guideline. Exactly. Okay. If Moses had brought that down on the tablet, we'd look at it differently. It's a guideline. Is that commandments? No, it's not a commandment. (laughs) Yeah. And that was the great debate. And it was a good one. And I won. (laughs) I don't don't think so. (laughs) So now it's September 2009. Who's got that bad? I have that topic. Asset protection. Don't assume that you can be sued for the extent of your policy limits. So this got into a little debate because one of my friends, Richie Schwab, said, well, listen, I'm looking at two million, five million. And some people said, well, the more you insure yourself, the higher your premium and the more we'll go after. This just recently came up. And so I want to take a little aside. Some colleague of ours is getting sued for $25 million for a case of something that was missed in a young person that turned out to be very bad. They really didn't do anything wrong from a medical point of view, if you look at it. But if that goes for $25 million, what assets can they take of his? Well, that's the next part here. Go. It's state by state. Like, if you're in Florida, they can't take your house. And that's why OJ lives there. Clearly, they're looking for assets to be attached, and you can't take your house All the Wall Street people do that. Texas is another state where it's very hard to touch assets. Let me just say this. It is rare that an emergency physician will be found liable above the limits of their malpractice because almost always the hospital kicks in. But I believe, Mel, you and I have had a conversation about a recent Michigan decision 
in which the hospital had settled out. They had no more obligation. The physician lost. They had $400,000 in coverage, which in Michigan is good coverage because of the way the state is. There's a $250,000 gap, maybe it's $300,000, in what they still owe. And they've attached personal assets. Now, I know you don't like to hear that story. No, it, I it, think it's great. I don't. Great story. Yeah, yeah, it's put, happy inside. Story, right? Let's go. It puts poo-poo in your pants, oh, and I understand There's that. so much poo-poo in my pants. <laughs> yes, right. The problem is this. If the group is not going to pick up the interval coverage, you're going to have to. I always tell the residents when they're applying at various groups, ask this one question. Has anyone in this group ever in its history had to pay one dime out of their pocket for a case. Because almost always the group will come in and help to relieve that. By the way, because someone gets a $25 million initial judgment, that can be reduced by the court. And plaintiff's attorneys understand that most people aren't collectible at that level. How many doctors do you know actually have $25 million? Yeah, other than you. Well, yeah, there's you. I'm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's some exceptions, of course. <laughs> <laughs> what you have to realize is that you're not collectible at that level. They'll cut a different deal. The but don't ever believe for one second that you couldn't be in a position where you might lose money. So the smart person knows how to diversify their assets. That doesn't mean putting them in your wife's name. Because you have a hundred times greater chance of getting divorced and having your assets go bye-bye anyway. So think about this seriously. So small plastic bags under your bed is the best way to keep the cash. <laughs> Pappy was right all along. Yeah, I thought the distillate of that was there's no point in getting $2 million, $5 million because your premiums are substantially higher. higher. And the fact is that most of us have $1 million, $3 million. That's what our hospitals require. And if everybody stays at the same limit, theoretically, maybe you're not going to be super protected. But nobody goes after more than that. Yeah, in general, that's the case. So after you guys talking about that, I want $1 trillion, $7 trillion. I don't want them to take my house. Yeah, it's my there, house. Yeah, there's others. Come on. <laughs> in, in, in my insurance company role, let me just tell you right now, you can't afford it, Mel. No. <laughs> we can't do it. The other thing was about having the protection of a corporation behind you so that they separate your, this entity from the, your personal assets. However, there's some problems there because if you don't fill, uh, cross the T's and dot the I's carefully, there will be the opportunity for the lawyers to pierce the corporate veil, which was done successfully to a group that we know in Orange County, where they right. had a, all of these guys, they thought they were protected by their corporation. It turns out that they weren't. They all had to put a, a substantial part uh, money aside. If they were to lose the case, it didn't go well. Yeah. So the idea is if you're going to have a corporation, you've got to do the bylaws and all that, the, your annual note minutes and those kinds of things. Last note on this is no one penetrates the veil on approved, properly approved pension profit-sharing plans. Every emergency physician I know should be maxing out what he puts in the pension profit-sharing plans every year. Because at some point in time, they can take your regular EF Hutton account, they can do this and that. Nobody gets your retirement accounts. Actually, one of our streamers who's watching this live asked the question, okay, so it might be rare, but why should I take the risk? Because I'm still in danger. So you're saying every time I see a patient, that patient could end up with all my assets. So how rare is it? Is it rare never happens or is it rare I should freak out? I know occasional cases in the United States, maybe over the last 30 some years, I'm aware of about five cases 
where there's been some loss of money on the individual physician, but it's not that it's never happened, but it's pretty damn rare. And like I said, you're much more likely to lose your assets to your wife or your ex-wife or your ex-spouse than you are to a plaintiff. Well, I wonder if another way to frame this is how rare is it to have somebody over to your house visiting a friend trip over, break their leg and sue you for all your assets. I mean, I'd like to frame it in a way that, because this freaks me out and I, I know it freaks a lot of doctors out. My job could mean that I could lose everything. I'm trying my best. Something bad happens. I mean, this is freaking me out and other people. Are you right. a risk-averse person? It sounds like you have Oh, some, I'm risk-averse when it comes issues. to this. <laughs> How about teeny tiny? Teeny tiny. Teeny Small. tiny. I mean, honestly, it makes me think I should work at a hospital that has very good coverage, a group that has very good coverage, and I know about it, and you should ask these questions. Are you going to support me if I do everything right and something bad happens? I think you need to know, because I'm sure that there are some groups that just want to lay you out now, and dry. you are an employee of Los Angeles County. There's a reason for that. <laughs> yes, and, and let me just tell you right now, Los Angeles County would have to go broke. Uh-oh, they are broke. So another question from a stream is why can't ASIP and AEM get involved so this doesn't happen? Because if this became less than a very rare problem, nobody would do medicine anymore. Well, that's exactly right. And believe me, we're involved. I can only speak to ASAP, of course, but we're involved in these discussions all the time. As you remember, ASEP was part of that group that went to Obama on the change in the health care plan to have some relief with regard to how one sues, particularly over patients who you are required under law to see. We don't make the usual and common business arrangement with people. You have to see everybody. You don't get a choice. So if we have to see everybody, I think the government then ought to understand that and modify the liability. But as you saw, our best efforts were not rewarded on the first go-around. We are really slow. Let's get busy here. All right, well, let's skip the, the next case of the trauma case of a guy who refused a rectal because we did that last time. Mm-hmm. He lost when he said, I'm going to sue you for doing that rectal because the doctor said, substitute judgment. I thought you were out of it at the time. It was a, not a big deal to do it. Emtala case we're talking about here, a very loud, obnoxious, uncooperative patient who required restraints, is brought to the ER and then discharged and is taken to the jail where they notice in the jail he is a little incontinent and bring him back. And the claim here, and this is an important claim, claim is medical screening was inadequate. And once you get a medical screening is inadequate, you're now into an emtolic violation, which is not going to be covered by your insurance. And when you lose that emtolic case, when the civil suit then follows, they got the president here, you already were proven guilty by Mtala. Now we're going to get you again and you're going to pay some money because we have all of this supportive evidence that you're being a bad boy. Yep. Off-label drug use. Is off-label drug use a problem? Not really, or not necessarily. It's okay if the off-label drug use is what a reasonable physician would do in a similar circumstance, if it has been supported by the medical literature, if it's become usual and customary. There's many, many drugs that are not technically approved for children that we use in children because they didn't want to experiment on the children to give them the drug, but we use it anyway. So it is now customary to give this antibiotic or this anti-emetic, those kinds of things to little kitties. So off-label means that you're using it for an indication that the FDA has not approved that manufacturer to market that drug for. doesn't mean that you cannot use it for your purposes because other colleagues use it successful. There's literature supporting it. Approval, it relates to FDA only. So moving on, failure to advise of abnormal tests. I think we've covered that adequately, but I do think it's important to stress that when you're trying to find this patient, to give them the information about their abnormal test, and they say, oh, they gave me a bad phone number, that is a mistake. 
the jury will say, well, what would a normal person do if you got the wrong phone number? They would call information, 411. You got to do that. Call information. Put down, I called them, no such number listed. Mail it to the address. Do then, a lot of different things. And, Understand that you and I have now just sort of fluffed that off. It's not a big deal. It's still a big deal. Things come back. Readings come back. Labs come back. And I think the point is you never ask a question you don't want to know the answer to and aren't prepared to deal with. And we talked about having systems in place, docs, nurse practitioners, somebody that will actually systematically go through and follow those up. So that's a good system way to fix it. There's that. a point here yeah. that also that I think is important. Um, if the family doctor says, listen, I'll see the patient on Tuesday. Would you order a mm test? You should put that in the chart. At the request of Dr. So-and-so, the mm test was ordered and he will follow up. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Then they get into high INRs and bleeding, a case that was alleged that you didn't treat the people quickly enough. And as a result of that, look what happened. Bad things happened. You know, the idea is just to know how to reverse warfarin. And I think also there's another side of this, which was actually not covered in that presentation. It's about the effect of antibiotics increasing your INR. It is predictable and it's substantial. So we're big antibiotic doctors. You give them this prescription for augmentin. Three days later, their INR is substantially elevated. You did it. You did it. So you got to be careful in those cases. Another aspect of that, and we'll just do this quickly, when you've got a young woman who's on birth control pills, and she's now going to be on 10 days of tetracycline or this sort of thing. Don't go there. Don't. Why not? Because that has been misproved. The only antibiotic that's been clearly associated with decreasing the function of birth control pills is rifampin, which we are using now for right. some of these the MRSA stuff. But this other stuff has been disproven. It hasn't been, been proven yet. Yeah. No. Um, drugs and driving, you can't basically depend on the pharmacist to tell a person who is taking a mind-altering drug that you prescribe that they should be careful. So you have to put down, you know, you have to acknowledge usual warnings or something like that. So don't drive tractors and, you know, heavy machinery kind of thing. And lastly, ways to lose your license. Well, that was a little overstatement, ways to lose your license. Yes. Well, they don't help you, let's say that. It says, keep patients waiting, gets good. Don't sit down. Discharge the patient's instructions to see your doctor, if not better. Use a lot of medical terminology when you're talking to the patient. It makes you sound very smart. Very smart. Assume the patient with alcohol and breath is drunk and until proven otherwise. Never speak to family or friends and don't read the nurse's notes. Those are... When I think about it, if I had to summarize my entire medical <laughs> legal career, those are the mistakes which juries do not forgive you for. There must be seven ways to lose your license. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. We had to do a discussion in October about what do you actually do as a physician if you've been named in a lawsuit. I'll state this without fear of being corrected that it's one of the worst days of your life. I actually got to see a senior resident two weeks ago get the summons and complaint. While I was doing grand rounds, somebody called him out. He comes back in pale with a summons and complaint on the case. Is it a good day or a bad day? All I can point out is doctors take this stuff too seriously. And I'm glad you take it seriously, but it ain't fun. Recently, I was playing golf with a friend of mine, Tom, and I got a call that said, Congratulations, a, oh, been, here been for you. And my next few golf shots were not my best. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> the other question is, how could you tell? Though? I mean, <laughs> Even for me. Even for you. Okay. All right. So these are some of the things that we came up with, which we talked about, which would be good. Early actions to take. When the case is going badly or you know 
that you're about to be named. Number one, when the case is going badly in the department and you know things are wrong, keep the family informed. Those people you need to get close to. The great line from The Godfather, I keep my friends out here, I keep my enemies close to me. And I think that's exactly right. If they feel you've abandoned them, and now you're sending somebody else in to give messages, you've made a mistake. They want you to be involved in this care. Don't go into too much detail. That is, I wouldn't make statements that you're going to have to withdraw. But if there's going to be choices made, would grandma want to go on a ventilator? Would grandma want to do this or that? You need to have the family involved in those decisions. Get help for the family. If you have social work available, and if you have pastoral care available, I'll tell you, the one thing I miss where I work is I don't have 24-hour-a-day social work. And the truth is about half my problems are social work problems. They're not medical problems. Get help. Be careful what you say. By the way, I think it's perfectly fine to say you're sorry that your mother's not doing well. Saying you're sorry is not the same as saying you're guilty. But we're all humans. Why wouldn't you say that? I mean, am I happy that your child is dying? I think it's okay to be a human in front of those people. Always tell the truth and never lie. First of all, lying is bad for the immortal soul. And second, unless you have a perfect memory, you have to remember what lie you told. And you're not going to. So tell the truth. It's just a better general policy. I want to argue with that. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I like this. No tomorrow. tomorrow right? It's great. Yeah. You know? And by the way, I got that advice from Tiger Woods. Okay, <laughs> next. On charting, don't make any self-serving remarks in the chart after it's apparent there's a problem. Be very careful how you put things down. The chart is not a document for now defending the case. The chart should contain the important elements, but don't say, well, if only the ophthalmologist had gotten here earlier, they wouldn't be blind. That's not what the chart is for. You never make a change in a chart, or you never make it seem as if something was recorded at a different time than when it was recorded. Here's the rule. When you record, let's say the chart comes back to your box the next day, then you put the correct date and time that you did your addition or filled in the word that wasn't understood or whatever it is, but it needs to be scrupulously honest. Yeah, it's the writing of addendums, which is assumed to be self-serving yes. after the fact. You have to time and date those to make it clear when they were written. Yeah. As soon as a lawsuit takes place, the hospital has an obligation to take the original chart, copy it for purposes, and the original should be put away in the vault so that no one has a chance to quote-unquote doctor the chart. <laughs> it needs to be put away and used when it's needed. Root cause analysis was discussed a little bit, which is the mutual seeking of truth and should not be a witch hunt. Root cause analysis is looking what are the systems involved as opposed to the people involved that cause this problem. This is almost always done in a protected manner, but it should be done. When something happens, we ought to know why. The anesthesiologists are probably the best at this. They're required to know which leg is going to be operated on. They're supposed to announce that sort of thing. The surgeon was supposed to have marked the correct leg. You know, a lot of this stuff is not high-level calculus. This is sort of blocking and tackling 
on a straightforward level, and these root cause analyses are probably right. I had this happen to one of my own family members. People were running around, and the anesthesiologist said to my sister, so you're the lady for the gallbladder. No, her surgeon had never identified her, and this was at a world-famous university medical center where they think that they can do everything well, I promise you that. And, no, she was in there for something on a tube or an ovary or something. They had her in the wrong room for the wrong surgery, and the surgeon hadn't identified her. Well, maybe she needed a gallbladder. <laughs> well, she might. <laughs> They're so good, maybe they knew. No extra charge for the other operation. And in most states... When these analyses are performed in the setting of quality assurance, they are protected from medical legal actions that come up. Full disclosure was discussed. This is the vogue now. It's very big in Ann Arbor, where I'm at the University of Michigan. There's a lawyer there who I've known for years, who was a defense lawyer for many, many years, and he now runs the Full Disclosure Project. But they point out three things. Full disclosure should only be done by people who know how to do full disclosure. You go to full disclosure school. They do. And I'm a board-certified full disclosureist. Yeah, you really. Yes, I can understand that. You realize no neurosurgeon has ever passed full disclosure school. Probably no orthopedist I would think either. No. If the hospital decides to take action against you, most states require that the restriction of privileges or time off needs to be reported to the State Board of Medicine. And in many states, this immediately starts a review of your license. At that point in time, you do need legal protection. And there are attorneys, just like there are those who do wills, trusts, and estates, those who do taxes, there are those who only do actions against medical privileges and licensure. And you need that kind of help. Avoid talking to colleagues about any case that went wrong. First of all, in deposition, they have a perfect right to ask you, have you spoken to any other physicians? The best answer you can give is, I have not communicated with anyone except through the quality assurance program, which is protected under law in most states. So all doctors want to plead their case. I promise you, they want somebody to say, you did it right. You did it perfectly Absolution. okay. Absolution is exactly what they're looking for. A good Catholic boy just told you that. So this is really where we're going. And contact your insurance company fairly early on so that they can prepare and assign counsel to the case. Expert witnesses are next. Didn't we talk about that on the first one, about you're allowed to help out mm -hmm. and you know they're really not experts? I, I think we talked about some of that. Yes, we did. Interrogatories, what is that? You will be sent, if there is a case, interrogatories, which just means questions to answer. They will go to your lawyer. You don't send those back until they've gone through your lawyer. They know how to answer these things. Most of them, by the way, there's a pro forma little words and phrases the lawyers stick in. They're just sort of talking to each other. But when you're sent interrogatories by the injured family's counsel, you need to know that you don't do that. You do that in conjunction with your attorney and then send it back. We talked about some rules for deposition, and I'm not going to go through all of those because it was extensive discussion. But understand that whenever they ask you about authoritative sources, there are no authoritative sources. There are only people's opinions that have been put down in books. And all books, and here's the phrase, 
All textbooks are written in general. Every patient is treated in the specific. That means that particular person has their own collection of history, physical problems, situations, and you only have certain things available to you at any one moment in time. So to take a textbook and think you can practice medicine, you cannot do it. It just doesn't happen. To practice medicine without a textbook is to sail an uncharted sea. To practice medicine from the textbook alone is not to set to sea at all. Jeez. There's a tear, I think, welling up in there. That was Osler. He had all the best quotes. I think this thing here about don't get boxed into yes or no answers. You know, yeah. you see these TV mm -hmm. shows where they're being attacked Have by the Have you lawyer. stopped beating your wife yet? Yes or no? Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, and the answer, to that, answer that? the answer that should be, if by that, counselor, you are trying to intimate that I ever was beating my wife, of course I never have. If you would like to intimate that I am now beating my wife, of course I am not doing that either. Next question. You notice, as soon as you start out with yes or no, they'll shut you right down. But you don't have to answer things yes or no. You have a right to terminate hostile depositions. You do. And I have had two cases of this recently. Someone sent us a letter about the degree mm -hmm. to which he was being hammered by a malignant attorney who is basically coming across the table and being threatened. You never have to put up with that. And the answer to that is just say, I'm sorry, your behavior is unacceptable. We are now terminating this deposition. We will then do it with a judge if you cannot be more civil. You could do it like Tom Cruise. You want the truth? You can they handle the truth. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've been waiting to do that oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Days. Well, that's right. That's right. God. And there's a the thing about attending the plaintiff's deposition. Oh, it is so important that if the expert against you, if you're an emergency doc, the expert against you in most reasonable states, I guess that's got to be six or eight of them, requires that the person speaking against you is an emergency doctor. Show up at the dep sit next to them or near them and look at them the entire time. Because if they're going to say under oath that you have violated the standard of care that caused harm to this patient, they better look you in the eye and tell you. I want the miserable son of a gun to actually have to look me in the eye and say that. Because if he can't do that with me sitting there, you know what? He must not believe it. The other thing is, you may get to the point where they want to settle a case. This is a business decision. This isn't a personality thing. That's why most physicians should not be in charge of that decision to settle. Because there's too much of your own ego involved in the case. And by the way, if it's a small amount of money or a reasonable amount of money, that ends the discussion. If you go on to trial and lose, are you willing to take the difference in that money out of your pocket and repay the group? Most doctors aren't. And by the way, I was hired by the insurance company several times to meet with doctors who did not want to settle. They had consent clauses in their contracts. And I'll tell you right now, we don't have those. Because the individual doctor should not be in charge of making those decisions. And so I just told them, we can settle this for $70,000. Here's the $70,000. We'll give you the check right now. You pay for whatever you want. But if you lose, it's your butt. Then you pay the money. And you know what? I've never seen a doctor take the check. He wants to settle that matter at that moment. Well, if time. you gave me a check for like $5 million, I'd take it and I'd move to Brazil. 
<laughs> I'm sure you would. <laughs> Uh, Still seems nice. That's right. And then lastly, this stuff about in court. Be there every day. Go with your spouse. Take notes. Be engaged. What what was the greatest (laughs) example of that in American history? John Dean in the Nixon. And Mo. And his wife, you know, that lovely blonde with the pearls who sat just behind him. So whenever he was on camera, she was on camera. That was a stroke of brilliance, the way they presented that. And he actually sort of then came off sort of as, I was the victim of this entire thing. And, you know, a tear in her eye. It was touching, as they say. November 2008, we talked about TPA and stroke. And it seems to me we talk about TPA and stroke a lot. And we start off with an article from Academic Emergency Medicine looking at the litigation of these stroke cases. And we found 33 cases that have been reviewed, 29 involved a failure to give TPA, usually because of some delay in a timely diagnosis. 21 of the cases were decided in favor of the physician. So I like that odd so far. So they found 33 cases. 29 of them, failure to give TPA, but the doc still won 21 out of the 29 cases. So that's sort of typical for medical malpractice, right? We think that it's a big deal, but we win most of the time. Isn't that correct? Yeah, most of those cases had either Sherry Hoffman or myself on the defense teams. We liked that. But the highest reward was $30 million for giving TPA when it should not have been given. $30 million. Who was paying for that? Yeah, but let's review why that case happened. Because this had to do with an emergency doc who brought in a neurologist. Well, this patient was over at X-ray getting their CT scan. They came back. The emergency physician had found a significant motor deficit when the patient came in. There was no documented second examination. The patient's family says, oh, he was moving his arm better when he came back, a little better. And, of course, whenever they're improving... That cancels giving TPA. And so what happened was they gave the TPA, and what happens? Now he's brain dead. Now he's bled into his brain. So what the family says, oh, if he'd only done a second examination after the CT scan, he would have known the patient was improving, and we, of course, would not have opted Mm -hmm. for the TPA. By the way, the neurologist was there. There's no evidence that he had done a re-examination of this patient either. And so the emergency physician goes down in flames. Then we talked about stroke mimics, things to watch about. Hypoglycemia, which is the big one. They can present with focal deficits. Mass lesions, seizures, postictal state, Todd's paresis, hemiplegic migraine, encephalopathies, toxic metabolic syndromes. This is all part of your make sure it's not one of these before you give TPA. Because TPA, lots of bleeding, that's bad. If you've got one of these things, TPA, not so good. So so that's sort of basic emergency medicine practice. So what do you do? Well, we talked about a few things. Make sure you get a good history. Make sure that you have informed consent. Make sure that you have a protocol that you follow. That's the most important thing. And you follow that thing to the letter of the law. If you cannot define when this thing happened, do not give that drug. The last time we saw him, this sort of thing, he went to bed last night. Now he gets up like this. Don't get sucked into those discussions. This is a repeat of last year's review, but remember, you need to know the NINDS exclusionary criteria, and you need to know the ECASC three exclusionary criteria, which expanded on the criteria for NINDS. Then we started talking about CT scanning for cervical spine trauma, and there's this 
increasing dilemma that we have that we all believe, I think, except for maybe Jerry and a few others, that CT scanning is just simply better for ruling out fractures in your C-spine. Well, but it's associated Jerry's with a lot own of- study says that. Right. If you looked at the Nexus trial, his own data says there was nobody, maybe there's one person who got a spiral CT, who then went on to have another finding. So I think we agree that CT scan's better, but it's a lot more radiation. So we're in this dilemma, but here's the American College of Radiology guidelines that we talked about, that the pool sensitivities for C-spine injuries for plain films is about 52%. I don't believe it's that low, but for a CT scan, it's 98%. They're radiologists. They know everything. So as such, you've got to be really careful. If you want to rule out the injury, then really CT is the way to do it. But the downside is obviously we don't want to scan everybody because they have radiation. But just know this is what the American College of Radiology guidelines are saying. CT scan, much better. Yeah, but the bottom line is this. Most people who get plain films didn't need the plain films. If they come into you and they've got tender muscles and it hurts over their cervical spine, I'll tell you what, they're going to get a helical CT from me. Our problem has been too many people came in lashed to boards that you thought you ought to screen them. And when you ask them a question, does your neck hurt? Well, not till they strapped me to this board an hour ago, and now everything hurts. You know, those people do not need the study. And I think that when we started clearing people on physical examination, We stopped backing up the radiology department with all this crap. You know, people come in, you get four or five people from an auto accident. That damn department's now backed up shooting films because every study has shown that the CT scan is much faster than positioning a patient for five different views of the C-spine. Then we talked about the intoxicated parent, and this is important, I think we all know this. You can't have a kid come in and have mom or dad hammered and then put the kid in the car and let mom and dad drive home. So you just can't do that. You've got to get that child home safely, keep the parent there, do whatever you need to do. Then we talked about cardiac arrest patients, and we noted that this was sort of a rare thing, that this is not necessarily a big medico-legal problem. There's not a lot of cases, I think we talked about, where you're getting sued because you didn't do exactly everything right, but there is ways to treat these patients, and that's sort of basic emergency medicine we don't need to go into here. But we did talk about with Kevin Clower, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Emergency Medicine Physicians of Canton, Ohio, and what that group, which is a big group, I think they have 600 contracts, something like that. About Some six, of the 60. 60? Oh, yeah. 600, maybe 600 physicians? Yes. yes. Something like that. What are they doing to limit their risk? And he said, look, they use standing orders and protocols like pregnancy testing and this kind of stuff that get done very rapidly. So that's one of the things they're doing. They actually walk around their emergency departments and watch what's going on to try and find specific system problems that they can fix. He talked about a three-strike rule. If somebody's come back for the same complaint three times, they go to brainstem mode, admit the patient we're missing it's something. It's interesting. Last month, when we were doing the first year's review, that came up. Mm-hmm. Here's a guy who brings it up separately you know what there's a story here here's another group that says three times there's something wrong well they also have another procedure where if you want to deviate from their guidelines you have to make a call to kevin or his designee 24 7 because the guideline says this i want to deviate you have to call the reason these guidelines are there is because they are high risk absolutely they also talked about the management of tias and in their group they say admit them Okay, it's very interesting. You might be able to try and work out low-risk groups, but we're just going to admit these people and work them up as an inpatient. And that's an example of one where I think if Grandpa's been in with his third TIA and he's been worked up completely, we don't admit him. But if you're going to deviate from the policy, 
then we'll give call. somebody a call. That's not a bad idea. Ultrasound and urology consult for testicular pain. Okay, that we've talked about that a number of times. Mandatory completion of a designated risk management course. So they believe in this group that sending their docs to a risk management course and hearing smart people like Greg talk about this stuff helps them reduce their risk. And that makes sense to me. I don't know if it's proven, but it makes sense to me. Shorter shifts. So they believe that fresh doctors doing eight-hour shifts is much better than doctors doing 24-hour shifts. And I think we all agree with that. Yeah, I don't think that anybody can defend those busy departments having like 16 and 20 and 24 hours, you wear down. At the end of that time, I don't think you're thinking as clearly and you're certainly as nice to the patients. They have a sort of designated x-ray reading discrepancy program that we talked about before. So if there's a miss, they have a system to follow those up. And malpractice premium rebates if clinical policies are followed. So doing second EKGs on chest pain patients and repeat measurements of abnormal vital signs. So these same things that keep coming up over and over again, they're looking for incentives to make sure their docs do it. And one way is money. Money talks, baby. Yeah. We then did an interview with John Lyman on that same one, who is the Chief Clinical Officer of Premier Health Services in Dayton, and their systems to limit risk, and they said, here's what they do. They document audits of high-risk entries with feedback. So they go through the charts and say, look, here's some high-risk things that you're doing. Please fix that up. So this continuous feedback program. They had an implementation of a consistent handoff policy. So here's how we're going to hand off patients in this department. You need to follow it, and you need to make sure you follow it or you're going to get in trouble. Again, these handoffs are the high-risk areas, and we have to do something to reduce that risk. And then there's the customer services considered the backbone of risk management. So if you make the patients feel good about their presentations, then they are going to be less likely to sue you. Is that sort of a good summary? If the patient likes you and you were nice to them and you saw them quickly, you know, my, my, immig- my Swedish immigrant mother used to say, Greg, it's good if people like you. And she was right. She was absolutely right. And I don't know how you prove that in emergency medicine, but it seems to be proven between specialties. Family practice docs who have very good relationships long term with their patients, when they screw up, they get sued a lot less than we do. Well, there's a very interesting study, I think it was Hicks at Vanderbilt, who looked at the question of, does the human interaction skills work? And it was much more important in things like OB, family practice, internal medicine, than it was for the surgical disciplines. It seems like people view surgeons as the technician who they're sued for the results of their surgery, where other groups, it is the basis of the interaction. But there is a clear relationship between complaints against physicians and their likelihood of being sued. Sued. Mm -hmm. That's been demonstrated a bunch of times, and it's just intuitively true as well. When there's smoke, there's fire. Right. December 2008, guest commentator Jim Parag, medical director of the emergency department here in Southern California, St. Joseph's Hospital, 100,000 visits a year, which is in Southern California. There aren't any ERs that see that many cases in community ERs. You see them at USC, Melvis, but this is a big deal. We are going to do a little picking and choosing here because some of this stuff had been covered previously. Under the idea of reporting obligations, we have discussed this, but there's a new twist here that I think is important to bring out. So yeah, you have to report the elder abuse, the child abuse, and those abuses and all that other stuff, and you have to document reporting that. The physician who does not report is also subjecting his group to liability. That is a new concept. What will be the charges? Failure to supervise, failure to orient, failure to perform quality assurance. Correct. So that basically, as an ER group contract holder, you need insurance for your group as well as for your doctors because you, as the group contract 
holder have your own separate liabilities in addition to those of your physician. So I do have insurance for our group and I have insurance for individual doctors. Well, that's the only way to do it because you got to remember the group has an obvious thing for them to attach, which is the accounts receivable. <laughs> you don't need to go chasing anything. And if you've never been to one of those hearings where they're taking depositions, that's called an examination of assets. And they will actually have people so they can find out where things are hidden, not hidden. It's real easy with a group. All they do is get a judgment against the accounts receivable from the billing operation. So they send the check to them and not to you. You don't want that, I promise you. Then there was some discussion of guidelines. And there is this phenomenon whereby guidelines, although the literature says they don't establish a standard of care, right? They are being used progressively more and more frequently to attack physician behavior. And I think it's important to know that they're not being used to defend physician behavior, but to attack it. And I guess it's being used as a credibility issue. Doctor, are you a member of the American College of Emergency Physicians? Yes, I am. Do you believe that it's a reasonable organization? Yes, it is. Do you believe that guidelines that they represent, that they presented here are reasonable? Well, probably. Okay. Did you ever read these guidelines? And so there's a whole this slippery slope here where guidelines can make you look embarrassed. Well, Rick, I'm sure you're aware of the article, which is in their data bank that says a lot of physicians don't know whether their organization has ever come up with a guideline. I was going to get to that point. I think it's important that you know that these things are out there. Whether you follow them or read them is another matter, but I think that they are, in many ways, these guidelines are just waiting out there to come bite you in the butt. Yeah. Guidelines are usually written to allow some wiggle room. Smart guidelines are. They usually need to have some kind of sunset clause that, see, these have not been revised for the last five years. So are they still current? Not necessarily. Guidelines are often in conflict. There's a whole bunch of organizations that write guidelines about the same topic. So one says this, the other says that. The idea is that you have to get to the jury that, no, this is not written in stone. There is some differences of opinion here. They're somewhat dated. There is no provision for updating these guidelines. They have to be discredited. Well, what happens is right now there's a difference in the guidelines between American Chest Society and the infectious disease people as to which antibiotics you would use in certain kinds of pneumonias. Now, they're perfectly good ideas from perfectly good people, but they're not the same. Well, actually, you're dating yourself a little bit. There were different guidelines, different antibiotics, but they have now come together as issuing just one set. Who has? IDSA and American Thoracic Society? When did they do that? Are you questioning me? No, I'm not questioning them because I I was under the understanding that they were still two different ones. No, I don't. I'm still laboring under the pleasurable sensation. He says, I'm dating myself. (laughs) I'm glad. The other thing that came up is a concern by a listener about, listen, how can you possibly not discuss cases that you're concerned about for, it might be years on end, you can discuss them with your spouse. Isn't that protected? Yes, it's probably protected, but then again... I doubt whether your spouse wants to give you an accurate scientific opinion about the care. Well, no, this may be venting, but here's the point. What if your spouse is the Surgeon General? <laughs> That's the problem. So the point was that if you're going to make this discussion, that you should be aware that you're able to discuss this with your colleagues. As long as you don't talk about this patient, you can generalize and say, what would you do if you had a case where this, a theoretical kind of thing, where they respond to it? But you have to be able to say... I have not discussed this case this with my colleagues. This particular case. So be careful, because I can tell you, every one of you are going to lie when you say it, I didn't discuss it with anybody. It is just not true. So you need to play this game carefully. Actually, the best way to discuss any case is in the grounds 
of medical quality assurance. Yes, but that was suggested in that chapter, and I think you suggested it, but how are you going to get your 12 doctors are going to be put on the committee so you can talk between each other? You're not having a committee meeting. There are no notes, so I don't think that that would really work. Well, can you I'll, say, like, when you're sitting around the table like we are, okay, we're about to have a quality assurance discussion right now. Let me tell you about this appy I just missed. It sucked in there. <laughs> I don't think well, so. I well, think it, actually, I think that actually does happen, and what happens in... For example, our group, we have the regular group meeting. We dismiss that meeting and move to the quality assurance meeting with a separate set of notes, a separate set of who's in attendance, and that is the department's quality assurance meeting, which is held immediately after the department meeting. Is that a reasonable thing to do? Sure it is. And by the way, the results of that separate meeting do go to the hospital's quality assurance department. And so far, there's been no challenge to that as a methodology. Here's what I don't want you doing. I don't want you sitting around the department bitching, pissing, and moaning to every nurse, tech, so-and-so. You remember so-and-so? Wasn't that a, you know, we did nothing wrong on it. You know what? Don't do that. We continued our interview with John Lyman from the previous month. He advised us to make sure the templates you use are current. I don't know specifically how that would get into trouble. I do know that I saw a case where people were using templates and it was actually a doctor who fell while skiing and dislocated her shoulder. Now, obviously, you pull the shoulder template and they did that and it told her what to do, except she also bumped her cheek. But there was no bumped cheek template and it turns out that she had a blowout fracture. And that was what they sued about. And the problem with these templates is now you're going down the path of the template and you have some other injuries, but maybe you could just put that on the miscellaneous part. I had to get into trouble. Well, that is the checkbox mentality. If there ain't a box for it, we're not going there. And none of us think that way as doctors. It's not the way we're trained to approach a patient. I think that the people who have developed these templates are well-intended, but I think that the physicians try to wiggle around the use of the... I'm sure there's a generic trauma template, but they yes. say, oh, I don't want to use that one. Oh, you want to use a broken shoulder template kind of thing. Let me tell you where I've seen that is when the triage nurse picks the template. And starts the activity. I've not seen that. Yep. Where they pick it. And so that's the path you go down. There is a general template on the medicine side and a general one on the trauma side. And when in doubt, when there's multiple trauma, when a finger's broken and a toe, that's multiple trauma, take that template. Because you're right, it will always push you in too narrow a direction to make a decision. By the way, if she had a blowout fracture... I can't picture they would miss the mark on the face. She's got to be pointing to that thing. I mean, that's a significant injury. Actually, she threw up a few times, too, because her vision yeah, was double. Yeah, that one's a little funny because, yeah, I agree. I don't think you're missing the blood pressure because you picked up the wrong template. You may have picked up the wrong profession, <laughs> but not the wrong template. Yeah, right. All right, a couple of things he also said. Follow your protocols. Well, I don't think anybody's going to argue with that. Performance audits. Now, remember the last issue we talked about if you don't perform them, that is one of the opportunities for suing your leadership. You're not doing the things that you should be doing. Although these people are also independent contractors, there is this issue about a hands-off relationship in those cases. So I guess you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. But it is expected that you do quality assurance of the doctors who work with you, whether they be employees or otherwise. And timing of selected activities are important. Receipt of urgent diagnostic tests, you know, these panic values, you got to put that down. When did you receive it? Follow up a discrepant reports, you got to put down when did you take care of that business. So I think that is the long and short of the December issue. 
All right. Well, Santa's gone. We've now moved into 2009, January 2009. We were very fortunate on this tape to have Robert Bitterman, one of my old partners, many, many years ago. He's an old partner? He's an old partner. And he and I were at EPMG in Ann Arbor for many years. And while he was there, he also went to law school. So he is MD, JD, BFD, and he is president of the Bitterman Healthcare Law Consulting Incorporated and chairman of the Board of Governors and President Emergency Physicians Insurance Company, an RRG. What is an RRG? That's a risk retention group, Rick. And a lot of emergency groups are now using risk retention groups to manage their cases. Independently, he is an expert in many things, but his area of expertise in particular is what he's going to talk about, what he talked about on that tape, well, Mtala. Mtala. I mean, Bob is the guy who wrote the ASEP textbook on this. He's the guy who wrote the book. When people want to know what to do, they ask Bob. So what we talked about was Mtala. And for those of you who forget the origins of Mtala, let us wander back in history to 1985, when the federal government decided they're going to stop all this pissing, bitching, and moaning about denying patients care, this, that, and other thing. The patient, bottom line... Patient dumping. Patient dumping, that you're not taking in those patients who don't have any money. So basically what the federal government said is everybody who takes any federal money, which is everybody, has to follow these guidelines. And when I say that, I can't think of a hospital that doesn't take some federal money. Maybe the Shriners burn hospitals or something like that, but everybody else takes federal money. So there's a bottom line here. They said the emergency departments are sort of the clearing houses for everybody in the country, and you're going to see everybody. Bob pointed out that virtually anything that goes on in the emergency department is going to fall under MTALA at some point or another. If they show up, you have to determine if an emergency exists. And the only way I know how to do that is somebody has to see him. Does it have to be a doctor? We spoke about that. He said no. But if it's going to be someone else, a nurse or a nurse practitioner or something, there has to be an action by the board of the hospital somewhere where they have certified certain people to do the EMTALA screening exams. So for most of our hospitals... Just put them in line and see them with everybody else. You know, you can go through so much work trying to decide, are they or aren't they? Shut up. Just see everybody. And to me, I don't care. If a nurse comes up and says, will you see? What's the answer? Yes, I'll do everybody. And we'll do a rectal on their pet chicken if they want. All I want them to do is put in line so that we can see them. What if um, the pet chicken doesn't want a rectal? <laughs> well, well then there's a lawsuit. Uh, you know, forcibly uh, doing a rectal on a chicken. You know, the plaintiff chicken is basically going to say it was usual customary procedure. And we do rectals on chickens all the time. Yeah, and chicken will lose. It's poultry abuse is what it really is. But they settle those for chicken shit amounts of money. Amtala fines, this has to be pointed out, are not necessarily covered by your malpractice carrier. You broke a law. You broke a law. You cannot be insured. A federal law. A federal law. And you cannot be insured for breaking a law. You can't buy that insurance policy. That'd be good insurance to have, actually. That'd be interesting insurance to have. <laughs> Speed, you know, <laughs> rape and pillage. Oh, <laughs> but if you think about it, the costs incurred for defending these things may or may not be covered by your insurance company. There is an action that an insurance company can take. And in my role with the insurance company, I have done this, where we defend under something called the rights of reservation. 
and rights of reservation are, we'll play the game with the lawyer, but if there's a loss, we expect you to come up with the money. And there's going to be an action against you to recover that money. And so rights of reservation are not uncommon, and that means you wanted us to cover you for something which was not included in the policy. So don't expect it to go on. By the way, federal proceedings trump state proceedings. And that's true in every aspect of the law, basically. The feds trump the states. And so even if you think you've complied with the peer review process of the states, EMTALA has higher requirements that they may impose upon you, and these you have to take care of as well. So your protected stuff is not necessarily protected. Well, that's exactly right. Because you've got a state law that says certain things can't be released, the feds can kind of get what they want and anytime they want it. There are only a few areas of the federal law that allow them to do that. One of them, of course, is income taxes and that sort of thing. They can go after anything. But another one is the Samtala, where they can get records which the plaintiff's attorneys in most state cases could not get. Mark Brown, who listens to this program, who graduated from UCLA, I know right now he's steaming because he can't stand these unfunded federal mandates that then put us at more risk and then they don't pay us anyway. And I think he wants to study his own country. Yes, I know that. All all of us are friends of Mark's. (laughs) And once Mark has the territory marked out, so to speak, we may join him. But don't hold your breath on that sort of thing. The essential elements of the MTALA law really fall into two areas. Who you must see how you must see them, but the next big area is how you must transfer them. If you're not going to keep them and you're going to send them, what are the rules? Now, there are rules both on the sending hospital and the receiving hospital. Don't you want to go from the beginning, doctor? We could. Don't we have to screen these people first? Well, let's go back to the screening part. You are required to check, obviously. This is the first part of the law as to whether one thing exists, an emergency. And again, the screening can be done by a doctor or someone else at the hospital is allowed to do this, but you have to screen everybody. And the law is this. If someone presents, and this is essentially the wording of the law, or a request is made on their behalf to be checked, you have to see them. What this means is, if you kick Billy out, the schizophrenic alcoholic, an hour ago, and now he's back, what do you have to do? Screen him again. And it gets complicated. I mean, this is something that Bob Bitterman knows cold, but it's about hospital clinics that you have to, they present there, is the hospital campus, and all of this other stuff about the scope of the geographic area, and the end, it's a pain in the butt. Well, there are case law on this about what if they're on the sidewalk outside the emergency department. All these cases have been litigated, and Bob basically says this, if they present anywhere on the hospital campus for care, you're obligated to screen them. And it doesn't matter where they present. If something else happens, you got them. You own the yeah, situation. Yeah, he talks like labor and delivery. Some pregnant woman stumbles up to the labor and delivery department. You've got to have a mechanism for screening them, whether it be sending them down to the ER or whatever. Yeah. By the way, screening is not screening like you and I might think of it. You are obligated to screen at the level you would screen anybody else for that problem. For example, screening in a lower abdominal pain case might mean a CT of the abdomen. You might screen somebody with a headache with a CT scan of the head and a lumbar puncture. 
I mean, it's what you would do for anybody else who came in. What the feds are looking for, and Bob was very clear about this, is differential treatment. You're handling one group of people differently than you would handle anybody else. If you'd handle the patient with Blue Cross with the exact same kind of screening and can show that, you're probably okay. If you've got two levels of care, you're not going to be a happy camper when the feds come in. Also, economic coercion is not supposed to be used to discourage patients. That is to say, well, we'll see you, but you understand you will still be sent the bill, you will do this or that, or if you get a veteran in, for example, say, well, yeah, we'll see you here, but if you'd gone over to the veterans hospital, they'd have seen you for free. That's not supposed to be used. Economic coercion is not supposed to be used to discourage patient visits. Screening and stabilization of minors does not require parental consent and should not delay seeing them. That is, if the 16-year-old comes in with vaginal bleeding, you don't need her mother there to do the screening because what reasonable parent would want their child bleeding to death? So they should be seen exactly the same order as anybody else until you determine, again, the magic words, that an emergency does not exist. Once you've determined that, then EMTALA sort of disappears. This also applies to labor and delivery sorts of things. If the hospital says that the labor and delivery nurse can screen and perform the studies and notify a doctor of what those studies are, that's fine. But they need to have gone on record and established that screening process for labor and delivery. Stabilization, by the way, is the phrase which is often used in MTALA. You and I view that differently. In some of the federal cases, they said to stabilize an acute appendix, you take out the appendix. And to stabilize active labor, you deliver the child. Exactly. In fact, the first case, which was the Patrick case in Texas, the first MTALA case, they're the poster child, had to do with a young Hispanic woman who came in in active labor. The OB man did not want the case. They sent the child by ambulance to another hospital, which is, you know, like if Texas is big. I mean, it's 70 miles. It's as big as Texas. Yeah, yeah, it's big as Texas. And they ran into another hospital, and that's where she delivered on the way. Well, how was the baby? Perfect. The reason that lawsuit took place had nothing to do with malpractice and damages. It had to do with violation of the MTALA law. Well, it became a cause celebra for everybody in Texas. You know, you don't mess with Texas kind of thing. They lost. And this is like a $500,000 set of fines and that sort of thing. The Texas Medical Association put a huge amount of money into this thing, and it didn't go well for them. It did not work out well. All right, let's talk about the transfers. Transfers and discharges are viewed similarly. That means you really do only one of three things. You admit patients to the hospital. Number two, you discharge them to home or you transfer them to another institution. Those are the only three options. And so MTALA, if you admit them, they're taken out of this. By the way, transfer of an inpatient, a formally admitted patient to another hospital, is not covered under the MTALA law. That means this other hospital has no obligation under MTALA to accept the case. You understand that hospitals do have an obligation under this law for their usual and customary patients of referral to take them in if they have the facilities. That means if you're at a small hospital in central Michigan and you usually send your cases to the University of Michigan Hospital, University of Michigan Hospital has to take those cases. They're not to be financially screening the cases. In fact, if you're asking questions like, 
what's the insurance status of that patient in the receiving institution, you're probably violating the EMTALA laws. Bob points out that transfers involve four principal requirements. The patient is accompanied by qualified medical personnel. That doesn't mean doctors or nurses generally, but that certainly can be EMTs, people who can run codes, those sorts of things. Secondly, the receiving hospital has the capability and resources to handle the problem. Why would you send them someplace that couldn't take care of the problem? That seems pretty obvious. There's a qualified person to receive at the receiving facility, and all of us know who filled out these forms, you have to put down the name of the hospital you contact and the name of the person. The feds want to be able to find somebody (laughs) and figure out what happened. And lastly, they need to be accompanied by the paperwork. Now, this has been modified just a little bit. I mean, obviously, we can send things now to secured faxes and over the internet, that sort of thing. We can send a lot of patient information, and that's perfectly fine, but you need to do it in some way, shape, or form. The EMTALA also talks to us about against medical advice, and we've reviewed this in the past segment here, but basically their advice about against medical advice is exactly the same advice we gave, which is they have to be offered, told what they've got, what can happen, what can do about it. You have to inform them completely and make sure they have the capacity to make those kinds of decisions. By the way, on-call specialists in Imtala have been softened. The pressure of the American Medical Association come October of 2008 actually has made it easier on the various specialists involved. What did that do? It made it harder on the emergency physicians. Emergency medicine has fought this fight, and I was involved with a four or five various iterations of Amtala. It was a setback for us when the AMA got a sort of relaxing of these requirements on right. these folks. So now uh, EMT coverage may be there Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Kind Correct. Of thing. And on Tuesday, Thursday, it's good luck, Charlie. Right. Exactly right. Here's my suggestion to the emergency physician in a hospital which does not have predictable coverage. That day, know what your coverage is because there's no use hunting for a half hour for a doc who ain't going to take the case. So you might as well know we have orthopedic coverage on these days, or we don't have orthopedic coverage for small children. I'm at one place where the orthopods are quite good, and despite what orthopedics means, they don't take small children. Those go to the University of Michigan. You know what? We don't even call the orthopods. We transfer to the place that can take it. And what these requirements have meant is that a lot of docs who are threatening to leave, and this was the argument that went on with the feds and the American Medical Association. AMA said, we have so many doctors who are aging, who are considering leaving the practice. This may be a factor in determining whether they stay or go. Do you want to be responsible, federal government, for less health care in the country? That was the argument. And the feds bought that argument. Well, they've also allowed regional coverage. So there's three or four hospitals get together and say, okay, this one ENT doctor is going to take coverage for these three hospitals on Wednesday night. That's certainly a softening as well. Right. One of the things that was very clear out of spending the better part of a couple of hours with Bob is this is not for amateurs. No. Many times consultants say, you need a helper. You need a consultant to come on here. This is one of the cases where you need to know the rules. The medical staff needs to know the rules, that your policies have to be well done. 
And if you don't have anybody at your hospital who can do this, you basically have to find somebody like Bob, frankly, to put your policies together because this is serious stuff. This is where they can shut your hospital down in 23 days. They not only look at the case that they were called in on, but they look at other cases. Every hospital that you've heard has gone through an EMTALA investigation say it's a nightmare. Well, it's not only a nightmare. It's expensive. You tie up a lot of money in flying in legal talent that knows how to deal with this, so this and is it's not good. about being preemptive. Right, exactly. And the best preemptive strikes you can do is for the emergency doc, should be on the executive committee of the hospital, go there, talk with everybody face-to-face in advance. You should never fight this fight over the body of a patient at 2 o'clock in the morning. And what the hospital has to realize is MTALA is a hospital requirement. If there's going to be shit, it's going to come down on the hospital. So if you have to transfer somebody out against the MTALA regulations, what the hospital has to realize is their administrator on call better speak to the specialist who's not taking the case because it's going to come down on the hospital. Yeah, that's the problem. The hospital is willing, but the medical staff is not. Right. And it's a conflict that is often not able to be resolved. Well, I've often wondered how hospital administrators reproduce because they got no balls. They're just unwilling to talk straight up to specialists about their obligations in call because this has to be worked out. I'm just saying right now, for a country that pays its physicians well, if you want to continue to get paid like a king, you ought to act like a king, which means solve the problem. All right, moving on. All right, then we went to February 2009, and the guest speaker was Stephen Selbst. 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 I know that you have a. I have difficulties. Issues with uh, language. I have big difficulties. He's a pediatric expert. He does the column of medical legal issues in pediatric emergency care. He's a professor of pediatrics and vice chair for education at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, and he's an important guy. So he went through some of the specific features of pediatric emergency care. For example, appendicitis. So the first point he made about appendicitis in children was that you need to do selective use of CT scanning, ultrasound, and you said this a little while ago, ultrasound is a good screen. We should probably go to that first. We don't appear to be having any health consequences from ultrasound, so let's hit him with the ultrasound first and a good exam, CT when you need it. And Steve is the guy who said, I hate the emergency physician who said children are just little adults. He thinks that's unreasonable. I think it was me who said that. It could have been. (laughs) He hates you. (laughs) Admission with serial exams is still an acceptable strategy, so that it's perfectly fine. We've got all this new equipment and we have machines that can do a CT scan in 10.3 seconds, but admission for serial exams is still completely defensible. It's good medicine. It's good all round. Early involvement of the surgeon in decision-making is another prudent thing to do medico-legally. So, Bob or Miss Bob, I'm not sure if this person has appendicitis. I was thinking that we should maybe admit them and Miss Bob gets involved in that care early. That's good care. Yeah, let's inject one thing here. When we have somebody who's a pediatric expert at a major institution where these people are in-house or can be brought down, this is not the usual and customary situation for our physicians. I mean, I'm glad he has that kind of backup. But you know, for you and I to get those people in there, the surgeon expects I've done a whole lot 
when he gets a phone call that says, I need his help. And then we talked about telling parents that the child definitely doesn't have appendicitis is a bad idea. And we've talked about this in almost all circumstances. You definitely don't have a fracture. That's bad. You definitely don't have a foreign body. That's bad. You definitely don't have appendicitis. That's bad. You say, look, it doesn't seem like it right now, but we're going to watch you very closely. We're going to see you again in 12 hours. Never say never. There are two mistakes. Number one, always use the phrase that the parent expects to hear. When they bring a child in with right lower quadrant pain, they're all thinking appendicitis. So what you have to say is, I know you're concerned about this, so am I, but there's not enough evidence at this moment in time that we do an operation. And you don't want your child to receive an operation unless they need it. But they have to hear those words. They have to hear that you're thinking about appendicitis because all of them are thinking about appendicitis. Absolutely. And one of the things we talked about specifically with appendicitis is the utility of the rectal exam. And he was suggesting from his point of view, he doesn't think that that would be considered standard of care for the diagnosis. So if you missed appendicitis and didn't do a rectal, the case shouldn't hold on that fact that you didn't do a rectal because all the studies say it's useless. I, it's I, useless I'd test. be firmer than that. I think that you cannot defend doing a rectal on a two-year-old if that's what you're looking for. I don't know of any study ever produced that said we were better at making the diagnosis. I mean, what two-year-old is not unhappy about you doing a rectal exam on them? Although it was used in the past in adults to fault your exam. It was not complete. It was not thorough. Everybody knows the rectal exam may be helpful. You missed the case. You didn't do it. It was an issue. And by the way, the studies also show in adults it's just as useless as it is in children. Exactly, exactly. But it's nice to have an expert like this say yeah. it's not. You look at all the literature on this, it says it doesn't add anything, just terrorizes the kid. Right, right. And then he had some other pearls, sort of general pearls about abdominal pain in kids. And the first one was that remember that vomiting and diarrhea can be a sign of a more serious disease. We all know that. But think about, you know, is it a brain tumor? Is it a DK? Is it something else going on? Just calling everything vomiting, diarrhea, is gastroenteritis is going to get you in trouble. Exactly. And on that point, if you're going to call it gastroenteritis, they better have some vomiting and diarrhea. So a kid comes in with belly pain, no vomiting, no diarrhea, and say it's gastroenteritis. Well, that doesn't fit with the diagnosis. At so again, it's just good care. It's just good medicine. And it's intellectually dishonest to be blaming everything on gastroenteritis. At one point in time, gastroenteritis was the most common diagnosis on charts that were litigated in emergency medicine. I was going to invent, Neil and I have talked about this, we we're going to invent a pen that every time you wrote that diagnosis, it smacked you in the head and said, <laughs> think again. I like that. Then he said, look, we should be cautious in prescribing things like Ondansetron to stop the symptoms of these kids when we send them home. And there's a big debate about that. The important, I think, take-home point is don't mask symptoms and signs when you're not absolutely clear of the diagnosis. Yeah, I think that the important point here is the literature on this is changing and our behavior is changing. And there's a lot of folks who think that you can better orally hydrate children with one dose orally hydrate them. What you can't do is pretend, if they're feeling a little better, that they don't have appendicitis. That's the only mistake you can make, is believing that because they've stopped vomiting, they don't have appendicitis. He talked about bilious vomiting, and our pediatricians at our shop now, we have seven double-boarded pediatricians at USC, and he said the same thing as they say, which is bilious vomiting is bad. It's pretty much always associated with something horrible in these kids, inner susception, gut malrotation, volvular. So if you see child plus bilious vomiting equals admission unless 
there's something extraordinary going on. This is a big deal. So keep that in mind. Yeah. But I would think that in most places, that is relatively rare. You're going to have 500 kids with vomiting before you have that. And as soon as the vomiting smells fecal, uh, there's a problem. <laughs> well, that's the problem is, is that bilious vomiting is uncommon. The mind does not see what the brain does not know kind of thing. So if you're not aware of this as being a red flag, you could just easily blow through this. Yeah, when they start puking the green, yeah. you're in trouble. Fever. Talked a lot about fever and the importance of documenting the presence or absence of committing signs of toxicity. So fever is very common in pediatrics. We understand that. What we're looking for is the toxic kid. Make sure that the chart reflects that you look for the signs of toxicity in these kids. By the way, I think that looking is, again, if I had to have one finding on a pediatric chart to defend that, it's your initial gut impression. Well-developed, active, two-year-old running around, kicking me in the shin, stealing crap out of the drawers. You know what? That's told me everything. I've never seen a kid like that who looking at their pupils ever made any difference. And I think you and I, particularly experienced parents, you walk in a room and you look at the floppy kid, I don't think you have to examine crap. What you then turn back to is and say, can we get the spinal set up here? Can we start an IV? Can we do these things? Sick kids, you know what? Look sick. He said that the chart should be internally consistent on these pediatric patients, and we would always say it should be internally consistent in every patient. So your disposition diagnosis should follow logically from what you've written in the chart. Absolutely. Routine documentation for lack of petechiae may help to defend in rare cases of meningococcemia. It's the disease that still scares me perhaps more than any other disease. Millions of febrile kids come in, they all look fine, but every now and then there's going to be a meningococcemia case. You probably can't do anything about it, but if they get litigated, they go for big dollars. Routinely saying to the chart, therefore to the people that are following, I looked for this disease and the best way I can look for it is the kid's not toxic and I don't see any little purple dots on their toes and fingers and face, says to the chart, says to the medical community and the legal community, this doctor looked... And that's the most important thing you can do. But look everywhere. Don't do what the pediatrician tells you to do if you don't feel comfortable with it. So if the pediatrician says, you know, that kid's fine and he's always got petechiae and a fever and it's just recurrent, don't worry about it. No, you're not going to follow that advice. The family all have stiff necks. (laughs) So this is no different than a lot of the stuff that we would do in adults. Make reasonably certain that the parents can afford the medications. Review the notes with the nurse for any inconsistencies. Do routine septic workups in febrile kids under the age of one month. And that's still what we're hearing. It used to be three months. We moved it down to two months. Now about one month. If you're very comfortable with a six-week-old with a fever, you might be able to send that patient home. Most of us are a little uncomfortable around that one month and a little bit Oh, no. One month to me is still frightening. I think they haven't developed an immunity then. And truth is, I don't see that many one-month-olds, so I'm going to work them up. Over two and three months, we get more comfortable with our physical exam. But if you're not comfortable, it's not unreasonable to do a little bit more testing and have a little bit more time to observe the kid. As you have more experience, you might get comfortable closer to that magic one-month age group. UTIs, he said, so far are not sort of a major source of malpractice claims. But you should remember that you should be cathing little girls and little boys if you really want to know what's in the urine. Yeah, I think the days of the bag urine are gone. There was some literature for a while about squeezing the diapers. Yeah, uh, and that, 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 Well, that's assuming they're not fecal diapers. But, you know, that literature was sort of on the edge. I'm not sure that anybody's doing that. I think cathing is the way to go. 
and it's not bad. It's very variable, actually, what people do. I go to our conferences and say how many are doing this and how many are doing that. Yeah, the universities are casting, but there's a substantial resistance against it. From a medical legal point of view, not many lawsuits for sure, but we still are wrestling with, is the pediatric UTI going to become the bacteremia joke of the 2010 when bacteremia went away and we had to come up with something else? And now everything is UTIs now. Yeah, it's amazing. And people argue, where are all these kids who are going on to have these chronic renal problems and renal failure because we missed the UTIs 20 years ago? Yeah. So I don't know if we really know the answer to this, but the more you look, the more you find stuff in the urine. Those are the same kids, by the way, who got chronic mastoiditis from not getting their otitis media treated, right? And in fact, talking about otitis media, one of the pearls he said is don't attribute a high fever to otitis media. Now, I know this is something that Rick has talked about a lot. A little tiny little bit of redness in that ear doesn't give you a fever of 108. Because you can have a giant abscess on your back or your leg, and that doesn't give you a fever 108. So attributing the fever to the otitis media might be a bad idea. Look for other sources of infection. Well, as one of my partners said, one eardrum is always slightly redder than the other. And it's obviously been used as an excuse to give antibiotics. Of course. That's a little red, give them antibiotics. Hepatic encephalitis and neonates, look for vesicles, think about it, treat with isoclavir if you've got a positive... Vesicles. And it was herpetic encephalitis. Yeah, herpetic. Yeah, herpetic encephalitis. Did I say herpetic? Yes, you did. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> herpetic encephalitis. Herpetic encephalitis. The acute scrotum. Well, when you're young, I guess you can have acute scrotum, but I'm not thinking you boys do. <laughs> Undress the children. Do a thorough exam. If you're concerned about torsion, you're going to have a low threshold for calling in the troops because time is testicle. And screwing around with ultrasounds and UAs and then getting nuclear scans is going to result in the loss of a testicle and the loss of some cash. We call that castration by procrastination. Also, high-risk things are little boys and their mums with their long hair and they can get tourniquets that go around their Schwanzens and then their Schwanzens falls off. And in general, I've heard when your Schwanzen falls off, it's bad. There's a lot of stuff in the inconsolable child that is underneath the diaper, incarcerated hernias, the hair tourniquet, hair tourniquets, the right. uh, testicle torsion, the eyes. Uh, that get actually, there. What is that little thing of the anus where you get a little tear there? Fissure and anal. Fissure and anal. You got to look underneath the diaper in the inconsolably crying child. Then a few miscellaneous things. Don't give phone advice. We've talked about that before. Don't give phone advice that delays care. So don't bother bringing in the kid until their fever gets to 108. It's only 104 right now. That kind of thing is silly. Yeah. Or don't come until the end of my shift. You have to report suspected child abuse and neglect. So it's suspected child abuse and neglect. You don't have to be certain, but if there's a reasonable suspicion, then it has to be reported. I think, is it in every state now? Oh, every state. state? There is no state that does not have reporting laws. I don't think Kentucky has it. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) you just lost 26 Uh, By the way, we apologize (laughs) for Rick. We didn't mean that. Be aware of myocarditis. Now, this is something he specifically spoke about, something that comes up and it can sneak up and bite you on the buttock. So the ill-appearing kid who's a little febrile, lethargic, maybe they've got a little chest pain or not. They may be a little tachypnic. They may have a little bit of cardiomegaly on chest x-ray and they may have sort of an EKG, which is nonspecific. Think about myocarditis and in these kids. And then the teenager with a limp, think a slip capital femoral epithesis. They may have pain that's referred to their knee. And so they come in complaining of knee pain, but it's really a hip problem. And so if you're concerned, you're going to image them. And if you're still concerned, they're going to be non-weight bearing and get follow-up. So I actually thought that that one was fantastic. A lot of pediatric pearls in this case. Kids are not small adults. Well, I guess that's a matter of opinion. But, uh... <laughs> 
we're going to say nothing about March simply because mostly what we did in March was answer our listenership's letters. And so really, if you want March, go back and listen to those. There's some very good questions, but not pearls that, that well, we need to Well, you know, out. they were questions why people really didn't pay attention. Again, we apologize for Rick. All of you who wrote in, I'm sure you did it with the best of intentions. Actually, we do like letters, and letters are usually quite good because they're much more specific. Tell me about this case kind of thing, and I think that we encourage them. I I was just being facetious. Okay. April 2009, pediatric malpractice. There was a review of 7,000 pediatric malpractice cases from six studies, including Steve Self's column. They took a bunch of, like, maybe 300 cases that he had done over the years, put them all together, 7,000 cases. The incidence of malpractice suits for kids versus adults is about half, they said in this paper. You'll see some repetitive things here, like most common diagnoses resulting in suits up to the age of two years. They included meningitis, gastroenteritis, pneumonia, and an impaired neonate. Well, we don't deal with the neonates too much. I mean, No. If, but, we, but if we can avoid it, we don't, right? Meningitis, historically, this may not be very current, to tell you the truth. Right, because meningitis, the average age of meningitis before the Hib vaccine and strip was months of age, and now it's 22, 26 years, 23 yeah. years of age, so yeah. it's very rare. Well, it, Which makes it even harder, probably, because you're not expecting it anymore. Yeah, but the problem with that is, we also have a growing number of people in the country who are non-believers in immunization. And depending on where you are... Tree huggers in Colorado is what they are. Well, whatever they are, they're not reading the literature. I don't think that I've ever seen a disease drop off the face of the earth like bacterial meningitis. When I was young in medicine, we were diagnosing two of those a week. I haven't seen a kid with bacteria on the tap. When you were young in medicine, they hadn't discovered penicillin. <laughs> well, that's, you know, in fact, Fleming and I were sitting talking one day. Right. Yes. But the point is... We have a treatment for a disease which has a terrible outcome. And nothing bad has ever been proven about giving the immunization. You know what? Get your kids immunized. And if you're in Southern California, where we're sitting now, I'm sure you have some people who probably didn't show passports to get into the place who may not have had that immunization. The problem with this is that we've forgotten how bad these diseases are. It's been a couple of generations where it was prevalent, your generation. Right. But my generation and the generation after me haven't seen these diseases. So it's very easy to say, well, if there's a small risk that my kid may become autistic from this vaccine, which is not true, but that's what they think, then I don't want it because they haven't seen the other risk, which is the meningitis and all the other bad stuff. Well, the two cases of measles I've seen have been in people who were not immunized. I mean, you have to kind of remember that there's small nidises of disease out there, and what they depend on is the herd herd immunity effect. And when the herd immunity is broken, then you're going to have trouble. The most common diagnoses between the ages of three and five for lawsuits were meningitis, gastroenteritis, appendicitis, intestinal obstruction, and fractures. So a fairly similar list, but now we're getting some appies and some uh, yes, fractures. Yes, well, appies turns out to be in every age group beyond that. A six to 11, appies, meningitis, trauma, and fractures. And in older children, appies, testicular torsion, trauma, and fractures. And you know, one of the hard things I have to deal with is you're supposed to have a bad outcome to result in a lawsuit. Well, what's the bad outcome in a testicular torsion? You don't have any hormones being produced by your testicle. You don't have any of the ability to get somebody pregnant. Well, until you prove that you can't get somebody pregnant, I'm not paying any money. Well, let me just tell Rick, when the jury looks at these things, they always ask, you know, what's a testicle worth? Well, that depends uh, when we're talking about yours or mine. Put a prosthesis in there. You could put a chicken egg. It would be the biggest testicle you've ever seen. <laughs> right, right, right. walking around with a big sack, you know. <laughs> right, right. We call that augmented 
indentation you therapy. Be proud yes. of that testicle, man. Right, right. You know, uh, I don't get it. Well, where's the damages? Understand. Where's the damages? People can get upset about this sort of thing. It's not damages. No, no. But here's the rule. I don't want anybody bitching about this. So if it's a kid with a painful testicle, as far as I'm concerned, I call urology. I'm right. going to examine him, call urology. That's it. Well, we have a list of criteria to successfully be sued. And there are no damages in these cases. All I can tell you is the public, it's not what you think the damage is. It's what the public thinks the damage is. And they think having a missing testicle is not a good thing, Rick. They do. Okay. What about appendicitis? So you're in the hospital for a day or two more. You always say this, but there is expected complications. A percent of these people will have obstruction. Well, when you later have on. obstruction, I'll pay you a few bucks. No, but in the meantime, you know, <laughs> you know, give you me keep, a call. You Rick. keep making that point, but I think you're an ignorant. And I slut. and I want you on my jury, Rick. There's no question about it. Yeah. Death and disability was most common in cases in kids under the age of five. I think we probably understand that. Cases that most often involve fatal outcomes. Here you go, guys. What's at the top of the list? Myocarditis. Myocarditis. You need to know about myocarditis. This is disproportionately fast pulse in a febrile kid and evidence of some respiratory compromise. So you've got to get a kid who's got 190 pulse and the temperature is 102. That is a disconnect. You should think, is this myocarditis? It is rare, but it is fatal. And by the way, but one of the discussions I was it. holding this morning on the phone was on the settlement of a myocarditis case. The kid's in the ER two hours and is dead. We have to remember that although myocarditis is a bad disease, do you know the therapy for viral myocarditis? Uh, it's the same therapy as for testicular torsion. <laughs> well, see, we don't know what the therapy is. And the bottom line is, yes, there's a few of those kids who might get a transplant. But if you've got a new drug that I should be hanging, let me know, because I don't think it is out there. In fact, the complaint in this case is, well, they should have done a pericardiocentesis, and then this wouldn't have happened. You know, they looked at the autopsy results on that. There wasn't that much fluid in that case. This kid arrested. Fatal outcomes number two, intestinal obstruction. So you're looking for the bilious vomiting. The bilious vomiting. And you're looking for that little sausage, that vertically oriented sausage of... Pyloric obstruction. And and interceptions. And number three was gastroenteritis. How do you die from gastroenteritis? Well, in some well, countries you do, and that has to do with a dehydration like question. In Australia or something like that. Third well, world. That, but that's a third world country. Right, right. Yeah. And fourth, pneumonia, fifth is sepsis. Pre-hospital malpractice was also discussed in that issue. There's an article from Annals of Emergency Medicine. Suits are relatively uncommon, and compensation is relatively low. I would have never guessed this. The most common cause of a suit in EMS is Ambulance crashes. Yeah. That's because you're riding around with lights and sirens when you didn't need it in the first place kind of thing. There's been at least three studies that show that the most dangerous vehicle for highway mile traveled is the ambulance. There's almost no reason for them to run lights and sirens because if you actually look at the difference in time getting to the hospital... We're talking about small amounts of time. What about uh, patient handling issues? So not only do they have crashes, they drop the patients. Clinical management was listed as third, frequently involving airways. So now more and more people are not putting in airways into tracheal tubes, particularly in kids, and they're using other devices. And lastly, you got there too late, you know, arriving transportation issues related to delays. Right. Use of textbooks in malpractice litigation. Jim Roberts and John Marks. 
I think those are the two who are yeah. really pushing. And a lot of us have signed on to that. To make it clear that textbooks are not establishing the standard of care. And they have a big move to have this put in. But they say that there's some pushback from the publishers about not wanting to put this in. Wait a second. It's not pushback. It's an absolute no. Neil and I went, we're about to publish another book in two months. And we said, why don't you put this in the front of the book? And what they said is, why don't you get out of here? They think that their legal department has put the right amount of disclaimer in the book. And they think what appears on this stuff basically says, hey, not much of this book is really useful. They have a different view of the way that disclaimer is written. I'll tell you that. Here's what they want. It is neither the purpose nor the intent of our textbooks to serve as a final authoritative source on any medical condition treatment plan, or clinical intervention, nor should our textbooks be used to rigorously define a rigid standard of care that should be practiced by other clinicians. Sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, it does. And these guys who are pushing it do a lot of medical testimony. Absolutely. And in fact, they've written a lot of medical books, like Jim Roberts has written Robertson Hedges Procedures in Emergency Medicine, which is one of the biggest selling books in emergency medicine, and he wants it put in his book. Two ASAP policies are reviewed. There's a little thing here about policies going on, and some of it is repetitive, but what is not repetitive is two ASAP policies, imaging an adult mild traumatic brain injury and adult patients with acute headache. And here's the issue. Both of these are extensive policies that are not likely to be remembered in detail by ASAP members, nor are they likely to be even read by ASAP members. So the issue here is, are you going to get blindsided by your ASAP member. Here's the ASAP policies. Do you believe in the ASAP? Yes, I do. Do you believe in their policies by extension? So there are generically risks in official organizations publishing clinical policies that are not necessarily embraced by the medical community. And I think that there was a great paper that we looked at, not referring to these two policies, but other ASAP policies. It was made clear that ASAP members aren't even aware that these policies exist. That is the April issue. Well, let's move on to May, which is, of course, the last month in our calendar year, May 2009. Again, we were lucky to have Jim Ducharme from Canada with us on this. We had a bunch of closed claims that were reviewed, and there were a lot of good lessons here for emergency physicians. The first case we reviewed was a man who was sedated with Versed for abdominal CT scanning. It's unusual that you use much Versed in an adult. I guess I don't very often sedate anyone who's an adult for the CT scan, but exactly why, we don't know. But they were looking at the CT scanning for kidney failure and some problems. He had a fatal cardiopulmonary arrest while in the scanner. The patient received several doses of Versed after becoming agitated prior to the CT. Now, I guess what the take-home points on this are, the initial agitation which he got after his first dose of midazolam may not be his anxiety. This may be a reaction to the midazolam. And if you've never given someone, particularly a child, midazolam and seen the hyper-reaction that can happen, you haven't seen it. Midazolam-induced disinhibition is what he said. Mm-hmm. But I think even more importantly is maybe there's some other reason that this person's getting rammy, hypoxic, blood sugar, those kinds of things, and this, this has shut him down with a sedative is not cool either. Yes, exactly. And everybody believes in the department the quiet, cooperative patient is the good patient. Sometimes being too quiet and too cooperative is not a good thing, and that was clearly the case here. There are hazards to sedating patients 
for the CT scan. And we need to accept the fact that there is a risk. Every time you give a drug, there is a problem. Well, he also got into the issue that they were giving this drug every one to two minutes. minutes. And he said this stuff peaks at five minutes. And so they were loading, 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 and then they probably just overdid it. But more fundamentally, I have no idea why they would be doing this. Well, early on, we gave larger doses of Verisid when it first came out. There's no question about that, and we did sedate a few people, and if you did not have someone who looked some shallow breathing, you probably didn't give enough of the drug. We call our CT scanner the tunnel of death. Yes. <laughs> and Ed Newton, who's the head of our department, calls Versed the drug of death, because when he reviews all the death charts, he says it's amazing how many people were given some Versed just before they died. Right. Again, suggesting... agitated. Because yeah. they're like, I'm trying to die here, help me out, and we're like, shut up, here's some Versed. Well, exactly, and you can't believe how quiet you can make them, particularly when they have a blood sugar of 30. We've had one of those where the blood sugar of 30 was treated with... Is it uh, said is treat the blood sugar? It certainly is. <laughs> we use that all the time. It works very well. A second case was reviewed that a mass was noted on the final chest x-ray report, God help me and save me. We get these things back in the department. We've looked at the film the night before. We're checking them for trauma. There's no pneumothorax. There's no ribs sticking in it. For what we look for, it's fine. Now there's a report the next day that said, minimal tiny infiltrate at this point, clinical correlation required, or if you choose, spend a little more money with me and do a big expensive test. Well, unless that's passed on and you decide to do something with it, this report went to somebody's doc, went to their office, got filed in their chart. And now, of course, what happens? Well, if you'd like to guess, they're going to come back again with a finding. Now, the question really is, to what degree, how aggressive should we be in following up these findings? I think there are consistent mistakes that people make that ought not be made. Number one... I think that you should tell the patient. They were your client. They have the abnormality. You should tell the patient there's an abnormality in your chest x-ray. We'll need follow-up. I'm very concerned about people just, you're asking the secretary or the nurse, would you let Dr. So-and-so's office know about this? Yeah. And they leave a message with the secretary in the office kind of thing. And Mrs. So-and-so has a density in the right apex. And that obviously falls through the cracks. And you've not done a good job. This needs to be doctor to doctor. We're talking about high-stakes issues here. Yep. Doctor to doctor. So you want to call the doctor and tell him? Fine. Take a few minutes to do that. But don't delegate this. There's lots of opportunities to screw this up. And I also believe the patient should be told as well, not just the doctor. Because what if the doctor forgets it or something like that? The right. patient is the one that's going to be the motivator. And God, please, no more calls to anybody, the doctor or the patient, without you getting the old chart out and saying, on this date at this time, I spoke with Dr. So-and-so. You know what? There's no defense like that. It shuts down all discussion. Your name isn't even included in the lawsuit. But I'll tell you, all these guys say, oh, I'm sure that I spoke with him. I remember speaking with him. And what does their doctor say? I don't remember mm -hmm. that call. The one thing that is helping us out these days is everything is going electronically now to these doctor's offices. And they have dates and times on them. We know when that doctor was informed that there was an abnormality on that chest x-ray. So if you think for one second, he's getting off this train. Our family doctors don't get a copy of the ER chest x-rays. Ours do. Ours don't. You shouldn't assume that. Basically, I think that 
That would be great if it happened, but I think you need a very active rather than passive process in these cases. I agree. I think you should be active, but understand, as we're moving more and more electronically, we aren't mailing these things out anymore to show up. Carrier pigeon, we have. Carrier pigeons are pretty good. You guys, you're a little behind the time, but it's okay. And when I say that you're a little bit behind the time, (laughs) this is a dangerous thing. We discussed an eight-month-old who sustained significant injury during a lumbar puncture. Now, stop. I've done lumbar punctures for years. The easiest patient to do a lumbar puncture on is an eight-month-old. Let me ask, either of you ever had a significant problem with an eight-month-old and a lumbar puncture? Well, it sounds like this kid was basically turned into a pretzel, just one of these forceful, and that's what killed the kid or made him branded. That's the point. The doctor who's doing the procedure, you're responsible not only for sticking the needle in, which is the simplest thing in the world. I mean... Literally, that's a third-year medical student kind of stick. It's the management of the child. And we've had some decent papers which have said when the child is put on the side, that's why, by the way, with an eight-month-old, I almost always do them sitting up and bent forward. But there's some very good data to say that their PO2s do go down. Yep, mm-hmm. we have a paper when, in the abstract. Yeah, when put in a ball. And I think, how hard is it? To stick some O2s on the kid. And some have, as you suggested, that's perfectly reasonable. But you do have this issue of, this was a trainee-done procedure where they probably want to get, get mm. just like Mel said, they put a, turned this kid into a little horseshoe that suffocated. And they then they put drapes all over the person. So right. they, they don't want any of any infections get out. Next thing you know, take the drapes off, this kid's dead. Yeah, see, this is bad right from the beginning. And I think one of the problems here is it says trainee procedure. Well, you know what? All of us at the table have helped residents do spinal taps. I'm not against trainee procedures, but what you ought to do is make sure that they don't kill somebody. You still are responsible for the child, and I'm not sure why that on-the-side bundle technique is used. Here's the other problem. When you have really skilled people, they're not on their side for more than about 30 seconds, and bang, that needle's in, the fluid's gone, and you're, you're done. You can just imagine how many lives were destroyed by this. It's just, oh, this gets me because here's this little kid. They've been pushed too hard. They've gone apneic. The kid's brain dead. The doctor now is like, freak. I've just killed a kid. Yep. Or I've made him brain dead. So if nothing else, it's a reminder. These kids go apneic very easily when you squeeze them like this. Don't squeeze them like that. Watch them. This is a two- or three-person procedure. This is a conscious sedation procedure. It's a high-risk procedure in the little kids because they are so easy to go apneic. I've seen it happen. Oh, there's no question. The next case that we did, this is a great month for cases. We had a man present to a small ED after ingestion of Xanax in a suicide attempt. Now, why he took Xanax for a suicide attempt, I don't know. He didn't know any better. He didn't know any better, right. The patient became violent during the treatment in the ED. Police were summoned. Police officers arrested the patient, transported him to jail. He was released from jail two days later. He calmed down. And he completed his suicide attempt when he got home. Now, the case which the family brought out, the case cited the fact that the doctor failed to properly treat, stabilize a patient with suicidal ideation, and failed to give the police the proper instructions, which were, when you're set to discharge this patient, just bring him back to us for evaluation. That's what they thought it ought to be, because the underlying problem had not been treated. His aggressiveness was now less. His drugs have worn off. Now he would be the perfect candidate to see the people in mental health and to at least talk about this. Now, I'm somewhat of a nihilist in the uh, suicide issue, I think, 
that there are people that we're not going to prevent their suicide. And with our best of intentions, the person, and actually smart people, who are committed to killing themselves, they're very difficult to stop. If you look at all the psychiatric lawsuits in the country, they're on two things. Suicide, well, sometimes it's homicide suicide, because people who don't care about themselves don't care about you. And the other thing psychiatrists get sued for is sex with their patients. But if you're looking for a problem that no one has solved, I don't think there is a scale. I don't think there are questions. Blood test? Blood test. Many years ago, they came up with a quote-unquote sad scale. Well, I don't think that that's ever been shown to be good. There was a study done, by the way, where they had the best mental health people, people seeing people in clinics, psychiatrists. And you know what? The same number of people, percentage of people in their group committed suicide as those people seeing family practitioners. All that may be true, but there is the assertion in this case was that this person did not have a proper psychiatric evaluation. And most juries are going to understand that proper psychiatric evaluations on matters like this are conducted by psychiatrists, not by other kinds of physicians, even though the data supporting all of that is very, very soft. It's not only soft, it's almost non-existent. But I agree that a proper psychiatric exam would have been done when three things were met. The drugs were gone. He was brought back to the emergency department and cleared, and then mental health was involved. And by the way, in the vast majority of places in this country, it isn't a psychiatrist who sees them. No it's, psychiatrist it's, sees them in my place. It's the pet team, and to qualify for the pet team, you will have needed to try suicide yourself. Right, of course. Uh, Listen. You ever see those guys come in, they got like a bone through their nose kind of thing, and they got the dreadlocks or whatever kind of... And this is now your consultation here. These are the comments of Rick Bucutter and do not reflect those of Risk Management Monthly or Mel Hubbard. But they reflect mine just fine. It's, 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 it's not a problem. It's two to one, Mel. <laughs> All right, moving on. Yeah, and Mel, do not hit him with that bone you just took out of your nose. All right. Pain All right. management. Oh, the pain management red flags. And I think that we pointed out some fairly good things in this one, which was... There is such a thing as abnormal pain, and it's not just a bad patient. There are people who have pain which is totally out of character with what they've got. And when I've seen these pains, I agree with them. Ischemic bowel. This is grandma who's in there who's got terrible pain in her belly, and you can't make that pain go away. As far as I'm concerned, that's an ischemic bowel to proven otherwise. Compartment syndrome. If you've got a 19-year-old athlete. In fact, I actually had a case of a 17-year-old athlete, a kid who was a place kicker, who was kicked 200 balls a night in practice, comes home crying in pain. This is a tough kid. I mean, (laughs) this ain't no wimp. He does this all the time. They take him in, and of course, what's the x-ray show? Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Hello. There's no problem. Here's the problem in that case. Father calls back two hours later and says, the Tylenol number threes are not helping. The nurse on the phone said, double the medication. Is anybody happy with this discussion? Delay of care. Well, he is in six hours, and in six hours and 30 minutes, the orthopod is digging dead muscle out of his leg. By the way, this kid was so good, he had already signed with, I think, Louisiana State. So he sued for what? Loss of consortium. (laughs) (laughs) He still got that. He's going to nail every girl in that school. (laughs) Yeah, he's still going to do that. uh... Intelligently sued for was the life earnings of the average NFL 
place kicker. One trillion dollars. Well, it's not a trillion, but you know what? It's big enough that we ought to think about. Why Uh, sue for a trillion when you can sue for a billion? (laughs) (laughs) Necrotizing fasciitis. Obviously, we talk about intracranial bleeding. The bottom line is this. When the pain isn't going away, I'd rethink about it. Because most patients who are pain seekers, as we say, pain medicine seekers, medicine seekers, When they get their shot, their pain does go away. They feel a little better. These people are not getting better. Think about it. Always put these things in your mind. Rick, any comments on this? No, sir. Beware of being overly casual. When a patient tells you about inconsequential injuries, and they will do that, the great comment from a 16-year-old boy is, I think I was hit in the testicle while I was walking down the hall in school or something like that. I know when I've been hit in the testicle. You know, I don't think this is a subtle sort of deal. Patients tell us a story which they think fits. There must be a reason for this. There it was must probably be a reason. Working in the yard yesterday. Yeah, absolutely. False and, causality. Yep, and you so, see it all the time. Mm-hmm. All right. I did want to mention this idea about analgesics and abdominal pain in the elderly. Elderly abdominal pain is not gastroenteritis. You can call it that. You will be wrong more often than not. Right. So you just can't shine those cases on. There's a whole lecture that Diane Bernmacher gives about abdominal pain in the elderly. It's all bad stuff. Yeah, this is high risk. The, the risk of death is enormous. The risk of them requiring surgery in the next 24 hours and all Old abdominal pain, bad. You know, and also we've recently done the papers that talk about atrial fibrillation and the setting of abdominal pain in the elderly. You're talking about throwing little, little emboli, ischemic bowel, those kinds of things. You should just try to connect the dots on that. We did discuss in this paper by our good friend David Sklar, who's at the University of New Mexico. He's chair of the department there and a longtime friend. David pointed out, title of his paper is Unanticipated Death After Discharge Home from the Emergency Department. Obviously, he wrote this about his own institution, so it took a little courage here. This was published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine in June 2007. The authors of the article pointed out they reviewed 117 people who had died within seven days of discharge of the emergency department. What's weird about this is that they collected these over a one-month period. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you don't think that's No, no, that's not uh, funny. Okay. Now, be nice now. Half the deaths were judged to be unexpected but related to the ED visit. And of these, 35 were felt to be to the result of possible errors. Possible. 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 Be careful how you say that now. Several themes emerged. In 29 of these 35 cases, patients were discharged with, I don't even want to say it, abnormal vital signs still present. When they come in and leave with pulse rates above 110 in their adults, there's something wrong. 29 of these 35 cases were discharged home with abnormal vital signs. Particularly... Tachycardia. Tachycardia, unexplained tachycardia is a high-risk feature. Right. If you're sending that person home with a tachycardia of 120 because they're anxious, just sign the check. Yeah. Well, what you ought to do is sit them down and just rethink the issue and say, now, here's some other things. And by the way, if it's because they're anxious, particularly the amount of time they're in your place, They've had a sleep. They've had a meal. They've probably uh, had two children. They've, they've had, had two college. children. They've gone through college. <laughs> they've done lots of things. I think that we have to stop ascribing pulse rates of 120 at the time of discharge to anxiety. It's just not right. It's like blood pressure questions. That study was done. When they came in hypertensive 
And then they looked at people, you know, that whole group. This is a very famous study done in New York. But confirm this for me, Rick. More than half those people did not have transient hypertension. What did they have? Hypertension. In this year's AMA course, we have actually two lectures, probably more than we need, on the consequences of you not paying attention to blood pressure in the emergency department on the high side, on the high side. And how many people, I think the number was in one study, half of them had sustained hypertension. It wasn't a transient effect. It wasn't due to their pain. It wasn't due to their anxiety. It was the fact that they were hypertensive. And we actually have called this lecture the most important ER test. Because blood pressure in terms of the long term is by far more important than any other crap that you're going to measure in the ER. In the majority of patients we see in the ER, the only reason you're getting the blood pressure is as a screening device to let somebody know. Because after all, why do you do the blood pressure on a 19-year-old boy with a sprained ankle? Because the Joint Commission says you've got to do vital signs. Well, actually, they don't say that. But, you know, you have to do appropriate vital signs, as far as I'm concerned. That's inappropriate, then. It's not useful. Except to pick out that kid who's got an abnormal number. And all you have to say is, you know, you need this rechecked at your doctor. Yeah, it's not negotiable. The number's 140 over 90. I mean, yeah, right. no, it's a no, number. It requires no thought. Right. Just deal with the number. Anyway. Uh, there's on. also failure to recognize worsening conditions. And people who are getting worse, by the way, in his paper, it was noted somewhere that they were getting worse. The nursing notes said they were getting worse. This is kind of an embarrassment, and here's a rule. No nurse should chart a negative note and not inform the doctor. Why would you write patient doing poorly? The next note ought to be like the night, the day, Dr. Herbert informed. That's what it ought to be. That's you covering your ass note, as we say. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, of course it is. Some of these were considered atypical presentations. That doesn't mean you shouldn't diagnose them well, necessarily. I think that that's an important thing. Atypical presentations of unusual problems. And what is, falls into that is the aortic dissections and things that are rarely seen. And then on top of that, they throw you a curveball in terms of the presentations. So unusual and atypical. Yeah. It's finally when you get through all of these cases, the errors were most commonly seen in cardiac, CNS, abdominal, pulmonary. But when you think about those, let's translate that. Oh, yeah, there's no orthopedic injuries down here. Yeah, that's right. But under the pulmonary diagnoses, what do you think that is? PEs, it's got to be abdominal. Okay, missed appendices. CNS, it's going to be the subarachnoid hemorrhage. hemorrhage it, it had to happen. So their bottom line was, be careful. I'm not sure how you take that home as a take-home, but it's interesting that they pointed out some of these things in this study. Well, Rick, that takes us through the second year, and to all of our people who are listening, we thank you very, very much. This is Greg saying goodbye for this year. This is Richard and Melvis. This is Mel, as far Melvis. as I'm aware. Look forward to the summarization of year three coming up soon. Soon. Bye. See ya. <laughs>